From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Saul. I'm your co-host, Ari Weitzman. We're going to have to get used to doing that together. <laughs> uh, all right, we, You don't like sharing, I know, I get it. Yeah, I don't like sharing. Yeah. We have, uh, I think, a really special episode today. The, the majority of this is going to be an interview with Daniel Bonora, who is somebody from the Ultimate Frisbee community. So, you know, for the the diehard loyal listeners who have been around Tangle for a while, they at this point know my background in Ultimate. And then there's also going to be a lot of listeners who know of Tangle only through Ultimate and are hearing this only through the Ultimate community. There's a little bit of insidery stuff in this conversation. We talk about some stuff happening in the Ultimate Frisbee community in the context of Israel and Palestine. But I think literally everything we talk about has a greater application to this conflict, to the way organizations worldwide are navigating this conflict. I know from reading our emails and feedback, so many people hate the way that I conduct interviews sometimes. There's a sense that I should be more adversarial and jump in and push back. I don't like doing that for a few reasons, and I just want to talk about them briefly before we go in. The first reason is you guys hear from me every single day. I share my take and my perspective in every podcast, in every newsletter, in every Friday edition. In most interviews, I slip in my opinion and share my views. You don't need to hear more from me. I think it's important for me to sort of fact check some things or push back on certain things. But there are rhetorical flourishes that people I interview are going to make that I don't actually think are worth challenging because I think you guys, by virtue of listening to and reading Tangle, are people who are really well-informed. Daniel and I have fundamental disagreements about some things related to, to this conflict. We have a lot of agreement, despite our different upbringings and different perspectives about what's happening right now and how to get out of it. There are a million parts in this interview where I want to press pause and stop and interject and say something. You know, you're you're going to hear him talk about the genocide of the Palestinian people. Anybody who's been around Tangle knows that I've written about, you know, why I wouldn't use that word to describe what's happening in Gaza. My perspective here is not important. I'm bringing Daniel on this show because he is an incredible advocate for the Palestinian position. He's a wonderful person. He's thoughtful. He he cares about this issue in a very deep way, and he has personal firsthand experience with it. And every single person, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, because I know he's going to say a lot of stuff that pisses a lot of people off, all, all I ask is that you listen to the interview in full and you hold in your heart that this is somebody I'm endorsing as a thoughtful, caring person who really, really understands this issue in a very deep and personal way, not just politically, but from the religious perspective, from the the regional conflict perspective, from, from the Western perspective, because he spent so much time living surrounded by the Western world. I'm so grateful Daniel gave us time. 
I had a million more questions I wanted to ask him. And I think we're probably going to have to do a part two. I say at the end, about two hours into this interview, it feels like we're just, the conversation's just starting in some ways. Uh, I bulldozed Ari. Ari, sorry for that. You didn't get to ask many questions, but you know, it's just, I couldn't help myself. Well, it's the Tangle podcast with executive editor Isaac Saul and his friend. He <laughs> sometimes corrects his language, so I get it. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll assert myself when I feel like I've got to. I I will read and try to reply to feedback. I know there's going to be a lot of strong feelings about this. Again, all I can say is I think Daniel is an incredible advocate for the Palestinian people. I think his personal experiences give him an unbelievable amount of insight into this. I know there's people who would totally disagree. I've heard and gotten all your emails about the necessity of me bringing on another Israeli or Zionist voice because we've interviewed a couple Palestinian people who are offering the Palestinian perspective. You've been heard. That's going to happen. You hear from me very regularly. I'm an American Jew who believes in the project of Israel. So I, I'm sensitive to that fact. And yeah, no more throat clearing. I think this was a fantastic interview. I'm really glad we did it. I hope to have Daniel back on. There's a lot I love, a lot I disagree with. I tried to challenge them in spots and I think it turned into something really valuable for you. So I hope you guys listen to the whole thing. After the interview, Ari and I are gonna circle up and talk about some breaking news that happened right before we got on. And then we'll do our little grievances bit to lighten the mood a bit. And then we're gonna get out of here because this is gonna be a long pod. So thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoy. Daniel Benora, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Isaac. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I have been watching some of your work from afar for a little bit. I'm, I mean, we have a, such an interesting connective tissue, all three of us, actually, this kind of weird ultimate Frisbee community, which some of our listeners obviously will know about and others, it will be sort of a, a foreign thing to them. So I want to talk about that and how this interview came to be and, and how we kind of connected. But I'd love to just start with you, the person. Um, we're we're going to be talking about the conflict in Gaza and all this stuff going on with Israel and Palestine and the history of this stuff and the religion around it. Uh, you have personal background, personal ties as a Palestinian American, and and also I think a really interesting professional background too that I want to key in on a bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself, why you care about this issue, what what your background is. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. Uh, yeah, I would. I just want to emphasize. I'm grateful to have this conversation with you. I think for the Western audience, hearing a Palestinian voice is not common. Uh, there has been a normalized discourse where the Palestinian is only mentioned insofar the Palestinian is violent or aggressive or problematic. Um, to, so for you to you you guys here to center the Palestinian voice and to listen to what we have to say, I think is very important. Um, it's important for us as Palestinians. But I think it's fundamentally important for those in the West to listen to um, what is happening from the other side and to hopefully add some nuance and perspective in the way they think about a very important and also messy and complicated issue as Palestine and Israel. Uh, so briefly about myself, yeah, I am. So I am a Palestinian. Uh, I am from the West Bank. I grew up in. I was born in Jerusalem, uh, and I grew up in the town of Beit Sahur, which is right next to Bethlehem. So I claim to be a Bethlehemite. Uh, 
And I come from a long, um, a big family, a tribe called the Banura family. It's been, at least as far as we can tell from our family tree, we've been around as a recognized family for the uh, last 14 generations. Um, I'm a Palestinian Christian, so I'm a part of a small minority of Palestinians who define themselves as, as Christians. Christianity in the Middle East has a very rich and complex history. Uh, we claim as Palestinian Christians that we we come actually from the first church that was established in Jerusalem uh, on Pentecost, according to the biblical narrative in the New Testament in Acts 2. Uh, so we, ho- we have roots in the land for a long time, way before Islam, um, you know, from the first centuries of, of Christianity. And Christianity in the Middle East has a very rich and diverse history in, in Syria, in Egypt, in, in Iraq, um, Lebanon, and so on and so forth. And so Palestinian Christians are within that complex uh, kind of matrix of Christianity in the Middle East. Uh, my family is Orthodox, um, and I kind of grew up in a, in a Christian community, but is fundamentally part of the larger Palestinian community that has a shared identity, a shared story and history and folklore and music and, um, you know, food, especially food. Um, <laughs> so something that is, you know, a very beautiful historical culture and identity that informs me, informs who I am as a person. So I'm a Palestinian, I'm a Christian, I'm also, I'm an Arab. My Arabic, my, my Arabic is my native tongue. Um, maybe these are complicated identities for some people, but <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, yeah, so and I, aside from that, I grew up in, in, in Palestine, in the West Bank, and also uh, in the U.S. as well. I was raised in the U.S., in, actually in Indiana, and then came back to the U.S. for my undergraduate studies in physics, and then had a, had a, had a kind of shift in my career, got interested in theology and philosophy of religion and comparative studies. So I did a master's in, in theology and then, and then got a master's in Islamic studies from the University of Chicago. And right now, I'm a PhD candidate in theology at the University of Notre Dame. I work on, maybe this is uh, too academic for some folks, so apologies, but I work on late antique scribal practices, uh, how people in the 7th century were collecting information and recording manuscripts and how that uh, helps us think about the collection and composition of the Quran, the Muslim holy text. Uh, so I'm a non-Muslim, but Arab, speak, I speak the language of the Quran, uh, but I'm a non-Muslim, but I'm super interested and, and uh, just enjoy my work on the formation of the Quran, especially in connection to its Christian environment and the communities of Christians uh, that have been around at the time, and to see that the intellectual history there and the points of connection between both religions in the Middle East. And then uh, to, um, to also to your point about our connection, Isaac, I happen to be the founder of Ultimate Palestine, the Palestinian National Association for Ultimate Frisbee. We can talk about that later, but that's like a different hat I, I put on. And yeah, I have been doing a lot of things in Palestine, entrepreneurship, advocacy work for, for Palestine, and also my own scholarship on Islam and, and Christianity. So that's it in, in brief here. Ari, do you, I, I know you have to say something about the University of Chicago thing. I you do, can... I gotta ask. I, <laughs> I went to Chicago from 05 to 09, and I'm wondering if there is any overlap there. I, I was there from 2011 till 2013. So yeah, oh, we just missed each, each other. other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we probably met a lot of the same people. 
Yeah, might be. Yeah. So Were you I, at the theology department or the div school? I was or? just an undergrad, but okay. I knew a couple yeah. people who went through the div school. Okay. They had a really good coffee shop. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually. So I used to work at that coffee shop, Grounds of Being. And that was the influence, my, the biggest influence for me really? to open a coffee shop in, in Bethlehem. So I wow. actually, the, the layout of that coffee shop in the basement of the Divinity School uh-huh. is the same layout of the coffee shop that I opened in Bethlehem. Wow. So Amazing. our Chicago listeners will know where to go to feel at home if they're ever, right, 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 right. ever in Bethlehem. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a question about your upbringing. I, I'm curious to hear a little bit about what living in Jerusalem was like for you as a Palestinian growing up and traveling back and going back, what that's like for you now. I think, you know, one thing our readers are, and listeners are certainly engaging with right now are conversations about, you know, Palestinian freedom and equal rights throughout Israel, in Gaza, in the West Bank. And I don't think people have a great grasp of that all the time. And I'd love to hear you talk about maybe your personal experience and and what it's been like for you. Yeah, good question. So just to to clarify, I was I did not live in Jerusalem. I was born there. My mom okay. used to be a nurse in Jerusalem at a hospital there. And so she just gave birth to me there. Uh, but we I grew up in, in, in Bethlehem. In Back Bethlehem. in the time, so I was born in the 80s um, and, and then the 90s. And movement was much easier for Palestinian West Bank Palestinians into Jerusalem. Like I remember in the 90s, we used to drive into Jerusalem. Uh, and then my mom working in Jerusalem, and that was common. And then with the Oslo process and what followed in the 2000s, restrictions of movement basically became the norm. Uh, and the kind of entrenched system of militarization of the West Bank through the, the Israeli occupation became the norm for us as Palestinians in the West Bank. And there's a lot to say here, Isaac, about the what is life is like for the Palestinian in Israel, in, in, sorry, in Israel-Palestine, or at least specifically for me in the West Bank. Um, how much how much can we do here? But basically, it is a system of 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 segregation and 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 militarism and and oppression uh, that has been normalized for both for the Israelis, where the Palestinian becomes invisible. Most most Israelis do not know Palestinians; they hide behind the wall, the segregation wall that Israel has built in the West Bank. And the Palestinians, like myself, got used to a lot of restrictions and things that uh, are very unacceptable, should be unacceptable to people, but they have become normal to us. So, for example, restrictions of movement, you can't really go places without passing through a checkpoint. Uh, If I want to go from Bethlehem to Ramallah, a different city in the West Bank, I would have to go through an Israeli checkpoint. Uh, roads designated for me designated for me as a Palestinian versus roads designated only only for for Jewish settlers, and if I want to enter into uh, Ramallah, I have to go through a different checkpoint. The vast majority of the West Bank is controlled by Israel. I think Palestinians have control over eighteen percent of the West Bank, which is what is called Area A, which is where the Palestinian government or Palestinian Authority has actually effective control. But even within that 18% control, it's really Israel that maintains all the control on the infrastructure, on the water, uh, on the air, on the internet, on exits and entries into the into the West Bank, through the walls and through the network of settlements and and, and roads and so on. Um, and there's a lot to unpack about this. The refugees in the West Bank, uh, 
basic rights uh, and freedoms are denied to the Palestinians. The whole system has been described, I think, inadequately in many ways as a system of apartheid that is very similar. It's very, it's also different, but similar to the system of apartheid in South Africa, where there's one ethnic group, um, in this case, Israeli Jews, who have complete authority and control, and a different people group who happen to be the indigenous populations of the land historically, the Palestinians who live under the control of that, what is called Jewish supremacist uh, system where Jews have you know complete power and Palestinians are de- disempowered, disenfranchised, uh, displaced and dispossessed. Um, so that is the reality. Um, and we can talk about the, that disempowerment and abuse of Palestinians in the West Bank like I tried to describe briefly. And then within that also in, Jews, in, in East Jerusalem and the restrictions on the, of the lives of the Palestinians there. You can talk about the refugees as another class of Palestinians who are also controlled by the Israeli military occupation. And then the Palestinians of Gaza. Um, and there's a horrendous reality that they have been going through. And also Palestinians in Israel who also face discrimination. Um, and there are specific laws in Israel that discriminate against Arabs and Palestinians uh, vis-a-vis uh, Jewish Israelis. So the word of, you know, apartheid as a system to describe the reality on the ground, I think, could be very apt here, um, with some nuance, of course. Um, so I think that's it as to help the audience to understand the power dynamics. Always you have to think about power structures and dynamics of power. Uh, it's been described by a Palestinian author, um, Ghassan Kenafani, as a conversation or a dialogue between a sword and a neck. Um one has the power uh, to wield power and, and violence at any time, and then there's a neck that is facing that. Or a description of the boot and the neck as well. There's a boot that is pressed against the necks of every Palestinian. And Israel has been successful at man- maintaining this system, as, infor- as uh, to enforce this system in a way that the Palestinian becomes invisible, um, and a in a very systemic and just brilliantly done system. Um, And it's a system of divide and conquer. You can separate the Palestinians into different legal and militaristic and civil uh, uh, quarters and systems of dominion and control. And that's how we can maintain control over them. Um, But yeah, I think maybe that's going to maybe helpful here to kind of frame the conversation. I have a follow-up question for you, Daniel. So I heard you mention very early on that you had said you could observe the systems of movement and regulation become more stringent since the 90s. And I was hoping that you could try to illustrate with some examples how things became more stringent. I know that you mentioned that you could travel by car uh, through East Jerusalem, uh, but I'm curious if the, the checkpoints that were within the West Bank were implemented within that time or how you saw things change during that time period? Yeah, so before the Oslo process and the whole idea of giving Palestinians some kind of self-autonomy or self-governance, uh, and that led to the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, all of the West Bank was controlled by this by the Israeli occupation directly. So you had the soldiers in Bethlehem, you had the soldiers in every town. So, but it was a normalized system of occupation. So movement within that system became was normal. Um, not a system of equality or freedom. It's a system of domination. But, but the Palestinians were controlled uh, by the occupying power. 
And now when the Palestinian Authority came to power and there was this kind of, hey, let's have this division of the West Bank into areas A and B and C so the Palestinians would have some control in some of the cities, then, but then areas B and C, and people can look up the map of the areas and can see what that looks like, um, where Israel would have security control. And then area C, which is a majority of the West Bank, would be completely shut off to the Palestinians. So these would be the military bases, they do, these would be the settlements and so on, and Palestinians have zero access to them. Um, water, uh, you know, preserves, water preserves, and, and, and so on and so forth that are con completely controlled by Israel. So like, for example, the Dead Sea area, like this is West Bank area, should be Palestinian, like on paper, right? Uh, two-state solution, all that nonsense about the two-state solution. But then it's completely monopolized by Israel, by the settlements in Jerusalem, and all the money, billions of dollars, you know, annually go to the Israeli government, to the end the settlement uh, network in, in that area, um, and is monopolized by them. Uh, now, moving on, when the PA came to power in, in 94, 95, and the establishment of these a band-to-stand system, really, where Palestinians have some localized power, but really no effective power. Uh, just, you know, and then the increase of the settlement movement, the expansion, like it skyrocketed in the 90s. And this is way before 2000 and the, what is called the Second Intifada. Uh, and that's when the Palestinians have been like squeezed into certain areas. Um, until right now, when we talk about uh, a Bantustan system, we have these pockets, um, holes, if you will, in the, in the West Bank, where the Palestinians have some semblance of governance but then the whole thing is controlled by Israel. It's been described, it's given, been given the analogy of a Swiss cheese, where the West Bank basically becomes the cheese. Uh, Israeli has control of the cheese, and the Palestinians are in the holes in that, in that Swiss cheese. Um, so yeah, described. So and then since then, just been decrease of power um, and, uh, and, our, and the denial of a lot of our freedoms of movement, of of democracy and access to water, access access to resources, access to our fertile land. Palestinians, you know, we we don't have a lot of land. A lot of people lost their farming land, especially olive groves behind the walls and the fences that Israel has established. A lot of the settlers would take over lands of the Palestinians, take over open open land and build their own kibbutzes and settlements, and Palestinians are shut off from access to their lands. Um, and there's a historical re reality for this. There's a way that the law has been established and implemented in the West Bank that really trapped Palestinians in that system of domination. Um, access to the internet, Palestinians in the West Bank only have access to 3G right now, which is so 15 years ago in the U.S., because Israel contra controls the airwaves. Um, and they would not let us have 4G, for example, or 5G, right? Uh, so, like, there's—I I would tell you without exaggerating here—that um, every aspect of life is controlled by the system of discrimination and apartheid, and it manifests in so many brutal ways. Like that, like I have said, have been normalized uh, by the system. And Israel projects itself as this liberal democracy that cares about people, that is a is a bastion of of liberty and freedom for people. Yeah, for some people, but not for the Palestinians. Uh, and that is kind of the myth of the Israeli democracy that has to be debunked. And and anyone who goes to the West Bank can see what life is like and I've, can obviously see this is not democracy, this is apartheid. Okay, so Daniel, I do actually want to talk about the ultimate stuff quickly because I think it's really important for our readers to have the context of how we know each other. But I played competitive ultimate Frisbee for many years. Ari and I actually met at the University of Pittsburgh playing ultimate together and we ended up in a writing group and 
Ultimate is a very niche community. It's a, I would say, a small, fairly insular kind of weird community that we're all part of these people who are obsessed with this sport that not a lot of people play. And after the, you know, Hamas's attack on October 7th, and then Israel's ground invasion and the air bombardment started, I started seeing a lot of Ultimate Palestine stuff pop up on my timeline. And I saw a lot of players in this community sharing stuff. And it, it, it made me think, you know, there's got to be people in this organization we should be talking to. And it's, it's our community is too small and too insular to not be having dialogues like this. So that prompted me to reach out. And I was so stoked when you were just game to come on. And I've known from following that work that the reality of this war has hit home for, for Ultimate Palestine. I know a, a coach from Ultimate Palestine was killed in one of the Israeli airstrikes that happened in Gaza. And I know that, you know, in a different way for you than for me, the reality of this war is is really close to home. I, I lived in Israel for six months in a yeshiva in Jerusalem. I have a lot of, you know, Jewish Israeli friends who have been deeply impacted by the war, certainly emotionally, who have friends and family who are, you know, hostages or were killed in the attacks or whatever. I mean, it's it in, in the Jewish community, it's spread in a similar way, I think, um, in that everybody sort of knows somebody who's been touched at this point by uh, the latest conflict. It, you know, people have called it like Israel's 9-11, which I think is sort of true. It's like a, it's a, something that happened that a lot of people feel like they have a touch point for. And then I know a lot of Arabs and Muslims who I became friends with or got to know when I was living in Israel who have been deeply impacted by it, either because they are in the Palestinian territories, they're in Arab countries where it's a really big issue politically, or they're living in Israel as somebody who's a Palestinian or Arab and sort of living through this conflict that's tearing, you know, I think the Arab and Jewish and Muslim communities apart. So I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about how the conflict has impacted Ultimate Palestine and and maybe what you're hearing from your friends and your family personally, because I know I've written a lot about what I'm hearing in my community uh, in, in Tangle. Yeah, thanks, uh, Isaac. I appreciate the framing um, that, you know, we can emphasize our connection to Ultimate, even though we come from different point of views and perspectives. Um, so there, there are a few questions in there. Uh, I want to have a small pushback, Isaac, but I think it's important. Um, the description of Palestinians in Israel as Arabs, for me, is a very problematic one. I don't think you you were intentional here. Um, but this is a language that is adopted by Israel and not by the Palestinians um, in a way that it's, it wants to erase uh, the Palestinian identity and reduce it to a, a linguistic one. So they're citizens, but they, the distinction between them and everyone else is that they speak a different language. And, and that does violence to the Palestinians. Now, the Palestinians in Israel, who are what we, call, what we call as Palestinians, we call them Palestinian Israelis or Palestinian citizens of Israel, in a way to emphasize their historical ethnic uh, identity, uh, they are there because they were among the fortunate ones who did not leave when the war broke out, when the Nakba happened. So they were the lucky ones, while the vast majority of Palestinians today remain to be refugees because they're not given the right of return to go back to their homes. They they clung on the keys of their door at the homes, hoping to go back after the war is gone. Little did they know that they would not be allowed to go back to their land. 
Um, so this is a, a, a population that has been uh, brutalized and traumatized for a long time. The Palestinians uh, who, in what is called now Israel or historic Palestine, um, Israel has tried to erase them in many ways. They erased them demographically by ethnically cleansing the majority of historic Palestine um, and pushing the Palestinians out to create a Jewish majority in Israel. It's a it's a reality. What is called the Nakba, the the catastrophe forty eight, where the Arab, the Palestinian Arab majority becomes a minority, so that uh, European Jews could have the power and the majority in the land. So I want you to be sensitive, Isaac, and I want everyone to be sensitive to this reality of the trauma of the Palestinian Nakba and how that impacts how we think about it. So this is a side note, but I thought I need to I need to like emphasize this for us because Isaac, you know, our identity is being erased. Our existence as Palestinians is being erased. Our land is taken from us. Even our falafel and hummus and salad is now considered Israeli. Our 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 towns and villages are being erased and given Jewish names. So there's an active. So when we talk about ethnic cleansing, it's not just what happened in '48. It's an ongoing nakba of erasure of the Palestinians. So we tend to be very sensitive about our identity. That we want to protect this identity that has been under attack for 76 years. Okay, so that aside, yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk briefly about the history of ultimate, ultimate Palestine and why we have it, and then, uh, and then your second point about how we have been impacted by what's happening right now in Gaza and throughout the West Bank. Um, yeah, so uh, I picked up ultimate in the US, in, in Florida. I was playing with some friends on Sunday afternoons, and I just fell in love with it, and yeah, and kind of some of the stuff you said, Isaac, about the the ultimate community and kind of the obsession we have with the sports, I really caught on very quickly to that. This beautiful community, the spirit of the game as a, just a fun and and just a great way to connect and speak and have you know have a good community, and that was very impactful for me. I used to play a lot of soccer, and soccer usually tends to be very violent and aggressive, and a lot of you know, faking and yelling about fouls and so on. And then ultimate comes like, hey, you know what? You can you can just say a foul, call foul and then everyone is going to start playing and listen to you. And this is great. And I was like, and, 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 and that for me as a someone who came from a, a bit of an aggressive background when it comes to playing sports, it's like, okay, this is actually very therapeutic. This is actually healthy for me. So I need this. But anyway, I um, loved ultimate in the US and then I got myself a free Frisbees and I went back to the West Bank. Bethlehem and I started playing with some friends. There were some expat, expats in the area as well who were living in Bethlehem and they came with us. They came, we came together, we started, we started playing. And that was in 2009. Uh, and then by 2014, we saw the need for us to organize ourselves as a Palestinian group. Uh, there was an organization there, continues to be functioning within Israel that uh, we found very problematic in, the, in their discourse and how they were using sport to... Um, silence Palestinians, let, us, let me just put it that way, uh, and sell a narrative that is not really true or authentic to the Palestinians. Uh, and we felt, hey, we need, we can do this. We do not mean to rely on anyone coming from the US or otherwise to tell us how to play sports and how to be a good player, and we can do this. And there's that sense, to emphasize this kind of sense of pride to, uh, of our identity that is under threat, it's like, we can do this, like, we can, we have what it takes to do it. So we started organizing ourselves, and we had this ambition to make ultimate frisbee a, a, a fundamentally Palestinian sport. So uh, we started in Bethlehem, and we soon after expanded to Ramallah. 
and different areas within the West Bank, like uh, showcasing in different uh, schools and summer camps. We went to Hebron, we went to East Jerusalem, and we have this kind of ambition to keep expanding in the West Bank. Um, and that continues to be this, the the focus of the work we're doing right now is to continue the growth and development of Ultimate within in Palestine. Now, that also included Gaza at some point. So in 2020, uh, I was able to access Gaza. Now, um, uh, I referred to the restrictions and the lack of freedoms for the Palestinians. We do not have access to Gaza as Palestinians from the West Bank. Different legal system and keep the Palestinians separate is how you, you do it. So I wouldn't. I I couldn't have. I accessed. I entered Gaza as a child. I think in the nineties, and that was the last time I entered Gaza until twenty twenty. Just before the pandemic, I w- was working with a development organization in Ramallah that gave me a German organization functioning in the West Bank that gave me access to uh, Gaza. They applied for a permit. Daniel is the expert that we need, and therefore. Uh, please give him a permit to enter into Gaza because he's an expert and we don't have anyone else who does ultimate Frisbee, right? And that's kind of the, that's how Israel let me into the Gaza Strip. Um, those who say that Hamas controls Gaza, not Israel, it's like, this is nonsense. Like Israel controls uh, all the boundaries of Gaza. It's been considered uh, an open-air prison. Everything is controlled by by. Aside from life within the, the Gaza Strip, the borders, the, the air, the water, the infrastructure is controlled. The food, the amount of food that enters into Gaza is controlled by Israel. But anyway, I was able to get a permit. And that's when I coached Ultimate and gave a training to 20 coaches in the West Bank, 10 women and 10 men. Incredible, incredible People, I, I've never, I've never in my life, Isaac, never met such generous and kind and sweet people. Um, and it was so, it was so heartbreaking for me because I'm, I'm one who's very privileged. I have access. I have, you know, more. I speak more than one language, and I grew up in a very privileged space within, within the as, as a Palestinian. And to go visit Gaza and to see the heartbreak, um, the destruction, the infrastructure, the the poverty, since the poverty in Gaza was horrible. This is in 2020, before 20, the, the war in 2021 and before uh, this current ongoing war. Such remarkable people. But anyway, I coached there, had an intensive three-day training for them, and basically they were qualified to start their own to start their own practices in the in the Gaza Strip, and they launched practices in five different athletic clubs, already established clubs in the in, in the Gaza Strip, and they were. Gaza was or considered the one of the most pop, uh, populated areas in the world, and they had there's no not, there's no room in, Ga- in the Gaza Strip. So people were like, "Hey, you know what? We can go play on the beach uh, because they have access to the beach." So they, you know, Beach Ultimate basically began in Gaza, and they had summer camps. Uh, they, you know, they they would play on concrete and uh, courtyards and so on. And they were so in love with this sport, and it was such a beautiful sight to see. Also, a lot of the there are a lot of uh, athletes in Gaza who are uh, disabled, um, amputees, and so on, who lost their limbs during uh, the um, you know wars, Israeli wars that they you know attacks on on Gaza. You know there had been five wars on Gaza over the last sixteen years since the blockade began, and a lot of people lost you know lost their limbs and legs and so on. And you saw this incredible community of of athletes coming together uh, on wheelchairs, playing wheelchair ultimate. Um, just an incredible sight of grit and and, lo- and love of life and excitement. And for me to be part of that and to 
to see the joy that Ultimate brought to them, especially a population that was so brutalized for a very long time and so in such despair and 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 poverty was just a beautiful thing. But honestly, they were teaching me life. They were teaching me how to find joy in the midst of tragedy, um, how to love their land and their, and each other in a way that myself as a very privileged person, even though I'm a Palestinian, but very privileged in comparison, I was like, I didn't have. Um, so, and that, uh, and that continued to be the case. And we did a lot of incredible work with them since then, doing their own practices, um, and growing and developing as coaches and led practices for them online, like online training for the coaches to advance level ultimate uh, coaching uh, using kind of with diff material, the World Flying Disc Federation's material. Um, and then the war broke out in, on October 7th. And my, my gut response then, Isaac, was to, you know, I'm a Palestinian and this is all shocking. And so I didn't make that connection to Ultimate. It was more like, hey, are you guys alive? Are you okay? Can, how are you doing? And and then the news started to, started to come through. One coach, Maha, she lost her brother. Another coach lost his dad. And others lost their relatives. Uh, and then we also lost connection with them. We couldn't connect with many of them. I still There are at least five coaches I haven't heard from since the war began. And then later on, we got the news that one of the coaches who got the training with me, Mohammed Shakir, uh, was killed as well. Um, his house was, uh, he was killed under the rubble of his house. We got a picture of his arm stretching out uh, from the rubble, uh, trying to maybe reach out for life, but then he died. And that was a heartbreaking um, re uh, uh, realization that I kind of knew it. I, I knew that someone I know in Gaza is going gonna, is gonna to die. And it's such a and then, like, it's such a heartbreaking reality. And you just, um, and that's an experience of most Palestinians. We've always, we've, we have experienced loss for a very long time. Um, so when Muhammad was killed, we just knew we had to activate as a group. And there's a larger conversation, Isaac, to have about the intersection of sports and politics. It happens here in the U.S. It doesn't happen in many places. But even those that conversations that happen in the U.S., they're mostly on the fringes of sports. Um, but for the Palestinians, you cannot escape politics. Everything in my life is dictated by a political system that was enforced on me by a foreign government. Uh, I mentioned uh, restrictions of movement in the West Bank. I talked, you know, there are checkpoints that stop us and so on and so forth. But then imagine what that is like for people in Gaza who have been under blockade for a long time, who are being bombarded and brutalized on, on, in such a grotesque way over the last you know, 125 years. And then, and then we just had to re we'd realize as an organization, myself as a coach, as 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 an advocate for my players and for my coaches, my only response is to advocate for them, is to speak up for them. And so it's inescapable for me to see the connection of sports and politics. Uh, athletes are not there for entertainment; they're not there to make us happy, and to spend our money and to make our bets and to watch TV late at night. These are humans with with full stories. And, a, and, a, and athletes and players who have been subjected to a, a brutal uh, occupation for the last, you know, 50 years, since 67, athletes who have been under a, a nasty blockade for the last 17 years, their lives are impacted by a political system that they did not choose, and, and they all, all of them are victims. And for me to assume that sports is just for fun or sports is an escape is irresponsible. And I would dare and say it's it's unethical. That's not how it functions, because athletes are human and they have stories to tell. 
And we, we've done this, the work has been done in the U.S., right, to, to explore the intersection of sports and politics in, in some meaningful ways. And, I've, and honestly, I've been inspired by some of the work that has been done within the ultimate community, but also conversations at the NFL and the NBA and WNBA and so on and so forth. And I've been able, and we have been able as an organization to tap into the uh, spirit of the game uh, as a powerful tool to help us navigate through that intersectionality between sports and politics. For those who do not know, sports, spirit of the game is that kind of tool that is mostly is used heavily and emphasized heavily in ultimate uh, and not in any other sport, I think. And one of the aspects of that is self-officiation, that you as a, you as a player, you're also a ref. You have, a, you have a duty to speak truth, and if you see something wrong happening, you have to speak up. So if I, if I got fouled, I have a, have a responsibility and a privilege to speak up, say foul. And whenever I say foul, everyone has a responsibility, if you play ultimate, you know this, to echo my call and basically force everyone to stop playing. Everyone has to stand still and listen to, to Daniel, who's been, who's been fouled. And then whenever we stop the game, Daniel has a voice and he can speak up and he can speak his truth and he can speak about the injustice that he just experienced, which is in this case, an unintentional foul, presumably. And then everyone would listen and they would engage and they would ask questions and they would talk about it. And then they would reach a decision that ensures justice is being done. You see here, Isaac, I'm using political language that <laughs> the spirit of the game is a fundamentally political tool that gives Palestinians in this case, and everyone else, the chance to speak truth to power, to challenge a system, a system that ignores them, the system that says, shut up and play. And, it's, and, the, and the spirit of the game says, no, we're going to challenge the system. And not only challenge the system, but also move towards uh, you know, justice, into restorative justice, into a system where those who have been hurt by the system can actually be you know, get the frisbee back. You know, get what is what is theirs. So this is the work that we have done in emphasizing the political element of spirit of the game that is mostly ignored in, in on the ultimate scene. And it's been such an incredible experience, Isaac, for for me to do this in the West Bank before I actually you know doing my advocacy work right now. And this is when it hit me, and I'll kind of give this uh, small story here, but it kind of really uh, is representative of our experience as Ultimate Palestine dealing with this stuff. When I first began coaching uh, Ultimate, a lot of players come from a different athletic background, mostly soccer. And mostly when a foul happens, uh, the kids usually tend to be aggressive. So they would like, you know, shout or curse uh, or just be violent about it in many ways, not physical, but at least verbally. And I'm like, hey, hey guys, you know what? There's a way out of this. You can actually, we can stop the game and we can all listen to you. You don't have to shout. You can just speak what happened. And for the, you know, 99% of the, 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 of the time, you're going to get the Frisbee back. You're going to be okay. And that's, and that's when the transformation happened for these people. Like, okay, well, we can do this. Okay, we, a foul was hap, ha, happened. I'm going to call foul and let's see what happens. And initially the players were looking at me to like help them, guide them to like, okay, what do we do now? What, what happened? Do we go back a few steps? What happens to the count? Uh, I'm sorry if this is very technical for those who don't uh, do ultimate, but you know, that's, these are part of the rules of ultimate. And then I realized that they were a bit dependent on me to speak for them and to explain the, the rules to them. And But then I was, I, I didn't want to do that for them. I want them, they need to know the rules, but then also they need to know how to advocate for themselves. So whenever a foul happens, I saw myself just turning, turning around so that I would ignore them 
and then force them in a way to like learn how to and learn how to use uh, communication skills and conflict resolution skills to develop their own to call for a foul and work it out among themselves. And then eventually they learned how the rules work and then how to speak for themselves. And then it hit me: the reason that there is so much violence in the responses to uh, to a foul is because Palestinians, and this might apply to other people groups, and this might be just you know not really accurate, but as a Palestinian who have been experiencing injustice imposed on us for a very long time, we got used to the fact that we have no agency and we can do nothing about the system. And the only thing we can do is to express our feelings and being angry and, and shout and so on. And then Ultimate gave us a voice, right? That, wait, you actually can control the system. You can actually stop everyone from playing and they can listen to you. And for for many Palestinians, this is not a real experience. They've never experienced th- that reality where they can actually speak truth and they, people could listen to them. And then eventually they learn to advocate for, for themselves, to pursue justice for themselves, to actually believe in themselves. And that has been just a very powerful way that Ultimate, for me and, and for a lot of our players and athletes, has just been a, such a powerful tool for them to teach them that you can pursue justice, you can be your own advocate, you can speak truth to power in a way uh, that is very transformative for you on the field and for you off the field. And, and kind of that's been our hope and drive for the last, you know, for the last few years. And now we continue to do that, you know, and we're doing that for our players in Gaza. We're doing that for our players in the West Bank and, and we continue to do so. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Yeah, one of the things sort of tied into this that that happened recently that I'm sure was a big deal for you guys, and I know certainly came across my radar, was that the the Nation actually published an article about some of the work you're doing, which I think most people who are listening to Tango are probably familiar with the Nation, but if not, a, a very large progressive magazine website uh, that that has a really big reach, and we cite authors from the Nation regularly entangle, um, typically writing under, you know, what the left is saying about a certain issue. And kind of the crux of the piece was about some of the pressure that Ultimate Palestine has been putting on WIFDIF, which is the the governing body of Ultimate Frisbee globally, to make a statement and call for a ceasefire in the war. And there were a couple of things about the article i personally had some issues with that I want to talk to you about. But I think like the centerpiece of the story about the this kind of pressure campaign on WIFDIF is really indicative of things that are happening all across the country in the U.S. for sure right now with, you know, various groups trying to apply pressure and then governing bodies like this trying to figure out where they should go, what they should do, how they should operate And I know this is like a little niche to the ultimate world, but I think it has a super wide application and is something that's relevant for a lot of different institutions across the country and the world, frankly. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about why you want WIFDIF to to make this statement and what do you guys hope comes of it, you know, in, in, I guess, the end game? And also define WIFDIF for us. (laughs) Yeah. um, Okay, I will. um... I'm actually. I really want to hear your pushback, Isaac, against that article. I really want to see. I want to hear what you what you're thinking about it. 
But yeah, so that was published by The Nation. I was interviewed in that article and I kinda, I'm kind of quoted heavily there. But so we, when, whenever we got the news about Hamad um, um, Shakir was killed and other coaches lost their family members, we, re- we released a statement. We put it on our website and our Instagram page. And we were just overwhelmed by the incredible support we got from everyone. So many people were sharing our story, our post and sharing it as stories and, and writing their own statements and their own responses to it. And we didn't really expect that. We were just, I mean, if you, if you read that statement, it's just kind of born out of just brokenness and, and heartache for the loss of our coach, uh, Hamad and others and so on. And we're saying, hey, uh, again, to continue the conversation about sports and politics, these are players who are dying. Uh, we don't really know what happened to our players. We know that one coach at least has, you know, was killed, but we lost connection with all of the players. And then there's a chance that some of them were killed, at least injured. Um, and we and we just, you know, like I said, I'm a coach and I advocate for my for my players. If I see something that is dangerous that is happening on the field, you know, if there's something like a something risky that is causing harm to could cause harm to my players, I have to stop the game and like remove it from the field, right? And there are literally airstrikes falling down on the field right now. There are fouls happening left and right in Gaza. Um, they're not just fouls like physical physical harm, like a, a slap on an arm. It's you they're dying. So we released the statements and we're saying, hey, like, you need to do something about it. Hey, like, hey, Ultimate Community, hey, World Flying Disc Federation, which is, uh, to Ari's point, this is the the umbrella organization that is basically puts itself as the guardian of the flying disc sports of the in the world, in Ultimate Frisbee, Beach, Guts, and so on and so forth. And we're saying, hey, some of your Ultimate players... Uh, all of your ultimate players are being traumatized and bombed right now. At least one coach has been killed. Some others might have been killed as well. Since you advocate for players, how about you release a statement for a ceasefire? And we're here, we're saying, we don't want you to make a political commentary. We don't want you to, we would love for you to look into this issue of systemic oppression against Palestinians for 76 years. Maybe look into apartheid as a, an unjust system that has to be abolished, and maybe you should not normalize Israel as an oppressive state on, in the world, you know, um, in the world, uh, you know, theater kind of and competitions and so on. I would love for you to do that, maybe later on, but maybe for now, just because you put yourself as those who, you know, want to that, see the development and growth of ultimate. Maybe you should speak up for the Palestinians in this case. And hey. Not to, you know, show favors, you can also advocate for the Israeli hostages. And you can have a, you have, can, you can have a consistent ethic that fights for the humanity of all people. You don't have to choose sides. You cho- you're saying that you choose humanity and dignity and freedom for everyone, including Israelis, including Palestinians. Now, we, we felt motivated to push with Dip um, to do that because we know two years prior, when Russia invaded Ukraine... Following the IUC, the Olympic Committee, uh, the WIFDIF released a statement, a very long statement, condemning the war that uh, of on Ukraine, and sanctioned the Russian Federation from competing in athletic uh, activities and championships, just like the IUC did, the Olympic Committee did. And they made a very strong moral argument why they're doing that, right? And we were saying, hey... Apparently, WIFDIF, just like the IUC, doesn't is not okay with occupation. Doesn't is not okay with war. It doesn't. It's not okay with the killing of innocents in Ukraine. Surely they would think the same thing about the Palestinians who have been victimized and oppressed and bombed 
27,000 of them today, surely they would show the same consistent ethic, ethical position in advocating for a ceasefire. And you know, Isaac, asking for a ceasefire is not a big deal. <laughs> You're just saying you don't want people to die. Um, and asking for a ceasefire is also asking for the hostages to be released. These go hand in hand. Uh, but for some reason, the base, baseline request that you would like to see a ceasefire was rejected by the WIFDF. Uh, they initially ignored our statement. Then there had been growing um, push from many organizations and associations and clubs. And eventually they tried to appease us and they released a very short statement and they made it very clear, here's a short statement because we don't want to spend a lot of ink on this issue. And there, I think the, and the sentiment was, oh, we, f- we feel bad about what's happening. And that's it. And, and that was just shocking to me. Like, why, why, why not? Like, why, why can't you write two paragraphs instead of one? Like, why can't you spend more time? Why not talk with us? You know, we are full members of WIFTIF. We are regular members as an association at WIFTIF. Surely you want to talk with us. And we didn't hear anything from them. Eventually, with more pushback from others, uh, it was organized for me to meet with the president of WIFTIF. And he gave me 30 minutes of his time. And I was like, hey, like asking for a ceasefire is not a big deal. And, and so on and so forth. And his response was, you know what? This is, this is complicated. Russia and Ukraine was very easy for us to work with. But this is, you know, there's October 7th, there's Israel, and we cannot do it. And I'm like, yeah, of course you can complicate it. Just like you can make Russia easy, you can make this complicated. That's the choice you're making. Uh, and that was the end of it. That was the, the conversation. He's like, okay, we'll discuss this in our meeting, in the board meeting. And then that was the end of it. Um, so it's been very disappointing to see the guardians of Ultimate, the guardians of Spirit of the Game, who claim to care for and protect and defend their players, not to show the same care uh, as they did for Ukrainian players. And it made us think, Isaac, that maybe Palestinians are not really deserving of that protection or that advocacy. Maybe we're not, you know, maybe we're not fully human who have, you know, freedoms and rights just like Ukrainians. And that is part, and maybe this is here I'm going to get a bit more critical, and maybe people are not going to people are not going to like what I'm going to say. There is an there is an there is an inherent racist discourse here that exists, where the Palestinian or historical, you know, white um, Arab, the Muslim, the so on, is not really ga- regarded as fully human in the Western discourse. And considering the makeup of WIFDIF, considering the power dynamics in WIFDIF and World Ultimate and World Sports, Palestinians do not have any power. Palestinians are not really significant to the conversation. But Ukrainians are. They tend to be white and European. For some reason, they have that power. And, and advocates and Palestinians do not have that. And it's like sad for me to like describe this in terms of West versus East, and uh, West versus East, or in like racialized or ethnic terms. But there's a pro- there's a fundamental problem here in with refusing to advocate for their the players that they think they they say that they advocate for. So I'm. I think I think actually this is a good entry point because I I think my my issue with the nation article actually ties into a few of the things that that you brought up here. So, I mean, first of all, I would say just fundamentally from from where I'm sitting, the biggest failure was that there was really no counter perspective in the article. I mean, and this is not your fault. You were heavily quoted in it. I would put this on the reporter, like 
th- there was, you know, there's a lot of Israeli Frisbee players. There's a lot of Israeli ultimate organizations. I think an, an Israeli voice should have been represented in the piece or, or a dissent, a dissenting voice should have been represented in the piece that, that wasn't there. I think that's really indicative of how this coverage tends to go in the Western press. It's either very, you know, sort of pro-Palestinian or very pro-Israel. There's not a lot of places that I think are doing a good job of providing some semblance of balance. I know people from both sides of this conflict who would say any kind of balance is, you know, the wrong way to do it because it equalizes them. And I'm sure there's a, a, I'm sure you could articulate a very compelling position that sort of, you know, makes that point. But I just thought like, there was a responsibility for the reporter to at least talk to people and, and hear some of the dissenting voice because I think it made it seem as if there was this really clear consensus in the ultimate community, which to your point, based on Wiftif's actions, I don't think there is actually. I think there's like quite a bit of dissent within the Frisbee community and mixed feelings about it and people coming from different perspectives. I'll tell like a really quick brief story, for instance, like in my world, something that I heard about was you know, at the European Ultimate Masters Championships this year, they happened right after the October 7th attacks. And uh, the Israel an Israeli team was supposed to go. They had like 35 rostered players or something. They ended up sending two people because everybody got called up or, you know, everybody was going to their family members who had somehow been impacted or people didn't feel like it was the right time to leave or whatever. And one of the players that I know who actually attended the tournament was planning to march in the delegation, you know, it's like a world championship tournament and carry the Israeli flag. And at the last minute, the flag gets pulled from the tournament and they're told not to march because it would, you know, it was a sort of like a a dangerous thing for them to do to include the Israeli flag in this march. And there was a protest from the Israeli Ultimate Federation. There wasn't really any sort of cogent response from WIFDIF or the governing body about why they made that decision. And for a lot of Israelis, it was like, you know, they're feeling really alienated in the community and separate and villainized. And like, you know, they, they're sort of having their representation taking from, from them. And that was, you know, Hey, totally. I'll be the first person to concede that pales in comparison to seeing a picture of a coach in your organization buried in rubble from an Israeli airstrike. But I think it's like a a perspective that would come across or be articulated in some way, like in in this story, if people were, you know, if if those kinds of people with that view or that perspective on this stuff were were contacted. The other thing I would just say that made me uncomfortable about it, and this is like something that I've just seen and, and that I think makes me uncomfortable about something you're saying, is this sort of comparison to the Ukrainian situation that I think there's a tone behind it that sort of implies almost that like the, the Ukrainian ultimate federation or whatever shouldn't have gotten the kind of support that they got. I think there's like, it, it diminishes what they're experiencing in some ways by saying like this stance that WIFDIF took in that situation was, you know, unworthy compared to the stance that they should be taking in the situation with the war in Gaza. And it also lacks the context of the fact that WIFDIF 
got a ton of criticism, actually, from one of the people on this call, Ari Weitzman, who I was one of the people from the Ultimate Community who didn't like how they handled the situation, their statement with regards to Ukraine and Russia, because it felt really alienating for a lot of Russian mm -hmm. Frisbee players yep, to sort yep. of separate them from the sport. And I thought, you know... I think I don't really know anybody at WIFT if I know a couple of people who have worked there over the years. I would bet that they feel a little bit burned by how that turned out. Like they felt like they had done something unambiguously right. They came out and stood up for Ukraine. And then they got this big blowback from the Frisbee community where people were actually upset they took a stance in that situation. And for them, it was like this was so obvious in black and white. And now all of a sudden, it became very not obvious that they had done the right thing. And then, you know, a, a year or two later, this, this spate of violence breaks out in, you know, I think one of the most third rail issues in global politics. And if I'm whiffed if as an organization and I'm feeling like we have so many different perspectives to represent, I, I can understand seeing like a, a landmine there that's really scary to, to step onto, especially after the experience they had thinking that they were doing the like unimpeachably right thing to do by by standing up and issuing this statement and calling for a Russian withdrawal from Ukraine and then getting the blowback yeah, for that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I'm not making any of these points to say that they're how I personally feel. I'm, I, I, my feelings are so all over the place. It's hard to sort them sometimes, but I do, th I, I had an issue with the article because I thought it lacked a lot of context that added some nuance. I thought that there should have been some other perspectives that were, that were included. I thought you did an incredible job advocating for ultimate Palestine and the perspective that you are coming through. I mean, you were quoted heavily in it and I think you, you framed it in a way that was really cogent and easy to hear. So th those were kind of my, my issues or the things that yeah. I, that frustrated me about it. Yeah, I, I hear you, Isaac. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. So let me share some thoughts based on what you said. Uh, the first point about not having another side uh, represented, I, I hear you. Um, and I don't want to play the whataboutism kind of uh, paper here or card here. Um, Palestinians are never represented in the West. We're never represented only insofar as we are the terrorists and the violent people. Um, whenever Israel is mentioned, Palestinians are silenced and ignored. Uh, so this is a one unique time, Isaac, that the Palestinians are centered, and this is and this is we should welcome it, uh, and and I think we should celebrate that voices from the margins are being centered here in this piece. Usually, the, the Israeli story does, and, and I and I want to need to emphasize this. It always ignores the Palestinians. When you talk about Israel, the Middle East, there's always the good guys and the bad guys. We, the West, we're the civilized people including Israel, and all the bad people on the other side, mostly Muslims. Uh, so, yeah, it is uncomfortable, I think, for people to, to see the Palestinian voice represented by itself. And I, and I think, I don't think you mean this, Isaac, but I, I, th I think because we got used to the idea that uh, those on our side have to always have a say in what is happening, and that the Palestinian or the other side to be represented as its own voice that is not contingent, that is not derivative, is not is not a common experience. 
So that's kind of what I'm, you know, I think we need to just kind of respect that, that there's, that to give agency to the Palestinian and that the Palestinian has his own voice and that voice can be represented and can stand on its own. I think it's something very powerful. It's not, it's not common, but it's, it's necessary. Um, and honestly, the article did not try to give it both sides. It was the, the journalist. Uh, they were trying to make the point that there is something that is uniquely happening here. And let's talk about this advocacy for Palestine that is uncommon. I, I hear you're, uh, you're saying, but I, I, think, I think the point of the article was just to emphasize a specific point about this kind of growing interest in that issue. Um, really, really quick, I just right. want to say, and, and I... I, and I, I understand that. I think I, I personally don't feel very uncomfortable with the idea of a, a singular Palestinian voice or a singular perspective being focused. I mean, I consume so much news yeah, from I so many tell, different news yeah, outlets. Yeah. I see that happen all the time, yeah, yeah. right? Like I'm, it's not, that's to me, that's actually not something that feels particularly yeah. rare because I try yeah. and go seek out those voices. I think it's, it only bothered me because it's, again, this really niche intersection of like ultimate Frisbee, Israel-Palestine yeah. conflict, and feeling like, you know, it'd be more responsible to offer some sort of yeah. countervailing yeah. opinion. But to your yeah. point, I don't think that's yeah. what they yeah, were exactly. trying to do. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah. I mean, you don't represent, Isaac, you are, yeah, you don't represent the majority of people, how they think about Israel-Palestine, right? You have that nuance and you listen to both sides and, and it's incredibly commendable. Um, so, you know, I think the general audience, the average person in the U.S. doesn't have that like nuanced, balanced perspective that I think you're from your own energy, your own time you put into it. So your positionality is different from the average person that I think, you know, is trying to, you know, we're trying to address and work with here. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm, I lament what happened to the Israeli team uh, who couldn't represent, you know, their flag and so on. I, 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 uh, I also know that many, also those who tried to raise a Palestinian flag at Worlds last in, in November couldn't do the same thing and, and, and they were shut down. And there's a conversation to be had about political, you know, uh, expression at, you know, at athletic, you know, tournaments and so on. And, and you know, it's a, it's a tough conversation to have and, and how to do it well. But I think, Isaac, the solution is not who's going to wave their flag and who's not going to wave their flag. The question is like, are we pursuing justice? Are we pursuing the end of the occupation? Are we going to dismantle the system of oppression? Let's talk, let's move towards that instead of, you know, being an issue of raising flags and, you know, showing who's got the bigger, you know, the bigger representation and power and so on. And that's kind of my hope for the Israelis to realize that you can never, um, you cannot erase the Palestinians. Palestinians are not going to go any, uh, anywhere. And you can never underestimate a people's desire for freedom. And Palestinians are always going to be there and always going to fight for their freedom in different ways. Um but it, the time for us to ignore the Palestinian and the, the plight of the Palestinians, the trauma of 76 years, we cannot go back to this issue. We cannot pretend Israel is a normal state. It is not a normal state. It's a racist apartheid state. And we have to address that. WIFDIF has to address this. The IUC has to address this. Um, yeah, you, you, I totally agree with you. The Russian players do not uh, um, deserve what happened. And also the Russian Federation came out against the Russian war uh, against Ukraine. And, and so it's a very commendable position by, by Russia. Um, and I don't want you to think that 
what I'm saying about with this, that I'm saying that Ukrainians do not deserve the advocacy and the political position. I'm saying politics has to play a role in sports. And we need to have that conversation about the normalization of, of violence and oppression and so on and so forth. I'm saying just because you made that courageous move with DIF and IOC, be consistent. Like, please continue doing that. Please engage with sports and politics. Stop giving, you know, a pass to systems of oppression, and especially when, when a genocide is being committed in Gaza that is completely destroying lives there. So... These are these are hard, you know difficult conversations to have, Isaac, and I understand that we probably will not agree on this right now. But we need to have these conversations, and we need to we need to center an ethic of 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 love, which is not a language that is used in politics. But we need to humanize people, and fundamentally, a people that has been dehumanized. And we need to have a consistent ethic that leads us into towards justice, and not a political game of. Israel versus Palestine, but a system and a, and a worldview that advocates for the humanity of both people and fundamentally, essentially, the, the, the Palestinians who have been victimized and dehumanized um, for a long time. Um, and that is the way forward for us when we realize that the dignity and the worth and the security of a Jewish player and a Jewish kid is equal to the security and the freedom uh, uh, and the rights of a Palestinian kid. But in our in the Western imagination, again, the Palestinians are not human. Only certain people are human, and not the Palestinians. And and, and there's a lot to say also about like how October seventh happened, and and why violence, and why Hamas would do what it did. But I think it's born out of a system where fe- people feel despair that the only way, just like the kids in on playing ultimate, the only response they have to systemic violence, to hurt, to abuse, to trauma, to an open wound, is to act violently, especially because the system has been violent towards them for a very long time, and they have not discovered a way to move forward in peace and love and in justice. But that's what we have to advocate for, right? Like the humanity of everyone, um, the Israeli kids and the, and the Palestinian kid. And we, ca- we, are, we are rational beings. We're complex. We can surely humanize both people. We can hold complex ideas all together in our heads, right? And act accordingly. When we say Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matter, we're not saying that whites do not matter, but we're saying that this kind of people is oppressed and we need to do something about it. So when we advocate for the Palestinians, we're not saying that Israelis do not matter, but we're saying there's something that is bad that is happening here, and we need to speak up about it. So I want to pivot a little bit, but I think this is actually a a decent segue here. We've been talking a lot about the ultimate community, some of our backgrounds, some of your history and experiences in the territories. One of the things that you... Uh, you're, you're, one of your pieces of your background that really intrigued me that I wanted to talk about was sort of this religion theological side of this conversation. And I was very interested to pick your brain about this because I think it's something that probably doesn't get enough, enough attention. There's, there's so many different threads to pull out here. I guess like one, one framing or, or setting the table thought that I'll, I'll put out is I see a lot of people both in the Western commentaries and I think in commentaries that come out of the Middle East, talk about this conflict in a religious context. So, you know, there are people like Sam Harris who say that, you know, 
fundamentally understanding a group like Hamas requires fundamentally understanding Islam and jihad mm, and this mm. like path yeah. that like that Islamic jihadists are on and and the way it's sort of taken a hold in certain parts in in places like Gaza or in surrounding countries Iran whatever then a lot of people also talk about the sort of religiously motivated settlements and expansions of Israeli territory that we see from people who are, you know, Jewish extremists, Jewish supremacists, however you want to frame it. I know, I know from being much more well-read about that side of things that it's really complex in the Jewish community. Like, people always assume that really Orthodox religious Jews are, are like the big ardent Zionists, which actually isn't mm -hmm, true. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, it's like a big misconception that a lot of people have about, um, you know, ultra Orthodox and Haredi Jews and stuff. It's like, th that is not their, in, even in Israel, that's not their big issue. Their big issue is like being able to pray and go to synagogue and not get enlisted in the army. There, some, some Orthodox Jews, by virtue of their religion, are actually opposed to Zionism because they don't believe that Israel can be claimed again until the Messiah comes. So there, there's like all this complexity and nuance that exists on that side of it. I'm so curious. You're a Palestinian Christian. You're a theologian. What kinds of religious threads do you see in this conflict that that stand out to you? And I know that's yeah, a huge broad yeah, question, yeah. but I'd I'd be curious to hear like the first things that come to mind for you because I think it's a really fascinating part of the discourse that I don't see spoken about in a really I guess you know deeper nuanced way right now. Yeah, no, um, Isaac, you uh, you really challenge your um, your audience here, and you're the person you're interviewing. So <laughs> thanks for doing that. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're you want to have a tough conversation here, and I think we need to have these tough conversations. So thank you for for doing that. Yeah, so religion, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very unfortunate that people like Dawkins and Sam Harris are just adopt a very silly and very narrow and simplistic way of thinking about the Middle East. And and, and I think for me, it's fundamentally grounded in Orientalism and some kind of Western elitism that rejects any nuance or complexity when they think about the Middle East. And the only way they can think about the Middle East is through the framework of Islam that is inherently bad because all religion is bad for them, right? And that's that's a problem with this kind of atheist uh, discourse that is adopted by Sam and Doc, um, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and and others. And it's so bad for smart, intelligent people like them to do that. Um, well, hold on a second. I, I actually I want you to make that argument. I mean, I think that's really like like I feel like you just labeled the argument, but you didn't make it. What, what, like what? Like what? I mean undermine that for me because i think it's important i mean the the this idea that the part of the political movement that hamas represents is driven by jihad is something i think a lot of people find really credible okay so i'll, I'll address that specifically that's a good question i was just framing the yeah. conversation that you need to have nuance when you think about islam just in general like you, way you think. Oh yeah, about, yeah, for sure. I just didn't want you to move right, no, past totally. it. I want no, to hear you talk notice. about yeah, that. Let's, yeah, I. This is a yeah. It's it's an important conversation to have about Hamas and 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 jihad and so on. And this is such a wide ranging conversation. Um, uh, God bless your your audience. <laughs> uh, 
So um, I'm just um, my framing. My initial framing is that you need to develop a more nuanced and you know analytical way of thinking about Islam, the Middle East, fundamentalist Islam, jihad, jihadi movements, and so on and so forth. That's that's just a framework. You need to do the work and be more. Um, nuance rather than adopting a very binary way of thinking of us versus them. Islam is bad, which is the discourse of Harris and, and Dawkins, and we are the good people, um, even though we're not Christians, but you know we're from the West, we're the civilized folks. And I think that discourse, before I talk about Hamas here, Isaac, I think that is part of a larger discourse that is called Orientalism, and it's been around for a very long time, and I think it's it's right now it's rearing its ugly head in a very disturbing way when it when the way in the way we think about Arabs and Muslims and so on. Um, so I, we those in the West have to do the work in analyzing how Orientalist attitudes in fact Im- impact the way they think about Palestinians and Muslims and Arabs, um, and also also Hamas. So. How do I deal with this now? And this is a very sensitive issue for me, right? As a Palestinian who is a Christian, not a Muslim, uh, but I'm also friends with Muslims, and Muslims are my friends and my neighbors, and a lot of my athletes are Muslims, and all of the player, the coaches in Gaza were Muslims, and also someone who's who's like a confessionally Christian, but who's also spending his career studying Islam and the Quran. Uh, it was, but that is a shift that I had to do, Isaac, which is to move beyond a, a tribalistic way of thinking as a minority who's under threat by the majority, by the Muslim majority, into thinking, wait, I as a minority actually can find beauty and goodness in the religion and the ideology of the majority and not feel threatened by them and actually find something good in that. And that actually is enriching to me as a person, and especially as a religious minority in Palestine. Now to the point about uh, Hamas and jihad, I think it's still apl- what I'm saying still applies here. That for us to paint uh, fundamentalist Islam or militant Islam in a very broad, a broad stroke is very unhelpful because we have to understand the context of the Middle East and these movements that have come about. And also the legacy of colonization from the West that has disempowered that people in that region and uh, and led to such extremist forms of resistance and fight and fighting to happen. Um, and I think we need to move away from lumping together, for example, Hamas with ISIS, which is a very, very dangerous discourse. Fundamentally, because the conversation about terrorism in the middle in, in the West is a is an inherently dehumanizing discourse a terrorist is someone who's not a human a terrorist is is a bad person ontologically inherently and the only solution to a terrorist is to bomb them and kill them without due process without understanding without nuance without hearing without trying to understand their background so you can kill a terrorist even if that terrorist we don't even know if that person is a terrorist right we don't have any proof of it the government says they're terrorists but they are not children, they're not fathers, they're not people full of life and desires and dreams. They're just savages that the only way to deal with a savage is to kill the savage. And that for that's for me is is similar to the way that people in the West have considered the other savages, whether it is the native in North America, whether it's the black savage, whether it's the Jew, you know, the Jew who 
is a violent is a is a problem to Christianity is the blood libel right and all these stereotypical horrible dehumanizing discourses that led to what happened in the Holocaust right they we we sh- we cannot have them they don't have any rights and and so on but that is a process of dehumanization that has that the West has excelled at doing um, so I think I think we need to like see that big picture there now when it comes to Hamas specifically. Hamas is an acronym that stands for the Islamic um, Liberation Movement. Hamas, Harakat al-Muqawma al-Islamiyya in Arabic, the Islamic Resistance Movement. It came out in the 80s, in the late 80s, um, 40 years after the uh, colonization of Palestine um, and the Nakba. And Hamas follows a, a very specific liberationist discourse that is part of the Palestinian narrative. Uh, they adopted religious language, but that is unique to them. Uh, but the, you don't have to adopt that religious language. Uh, people would know about Palestinian milit- militancy from the 60s and the 70s that was inherently secular and non-religious. Actually, some of that was was done by Christians. So, for example, the the, the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine was established by George Habash, a Christian. But adopted very like militant tactics. Um, so Hamas came about in the late eighties, um, funded by Israel, as many generals in Israel also admit today, as to counterbalance the balanced secular Fatah party. And and until recently, Netanyahu was boasting about his support for Hamas financially to keep him in power in in, in Gaza. But. So that is very different from takfiri movements. This is a technical term in, in, in Islam, which is these pietistic fundamentalist groups like ISIS who are seeking to purify um, Islam and find, you know, that, you know, they would make the argument that the reason for the decadence of the Muslim world is our deviance from Islam and, and so on. And they think that the way to take care of this is to purify Islam. And that's what takfiri is, to find who's the kafir and who's not the kafir. Um, so ISIS would be an example of this. Hamas is not a part of this, and I'm, and here I'm at, at like here. This is a challenge because I'm trying to push people to humanize Hamas, right? To try to find complexity in Hamas, which is not common for people. And also, I real, realize this is also uncomfortable for me in this context because I don't want to seem like an apologist. Just also to to clarify the air here, I I abhor violence in all its forms and shapes. I disagree with Hamas's policies and and ideologies. So I don't. Please understand this. As a Palestinian who is part of a larger and a complex Palestinian society, I, I'm a I'm a militant, nonviolent uh, person. I, you know, abhor any source of violence because violence is fundamentally uh, uh, dehumanizing, and even violence by the oppressed, I even reject. So none of what I'm saying here. I don't want it to be construed as a defense for Hamas, but I want us to understand Hamas. And I'm analyzing Hamas as someone who knows Hamas, who knows people in Gaza who are part of Hamas and in the West Bank, who met them, and also following what they say in their own constitution from from, uh, 2017 and from the report they released a few days ago about the operation on October 7th. So all I'm saying that Hamas fundamentally sees itself as they define it, as they describe it, as a liberationist movement that is fighting against Zionism and not against Judaism. Um, and the claim that they would be jihadi takfiris akin to ISIS is a very bad way to understand Islam, uh, to understand Hamas and how they operate. 
Many Palestinians, not just Hamas, believe in the right to bear arms and an armed struggle. They have been brutalized by a very brutal system of violence and and terrorism that has terrorized Palestinians. And I'm using the word terrorism here carefully because Palestinians have been terrorized for a very long time, along many people like in Iraq and and right now Yemen and other places who have been terrorized by, by Western imperialism. And, and they think that armed struggle is a legitimate way to fight against uh, uh, Israeli violence and, and terrorism that they have been facing. I, I completely reject it as Daniel, as a, as, a, um, as a Palestinian and as a Palestinian Christian. Uh, but it's not unique to Muslims or Arabs. I think it goes hand in hand with Native American struggle against pilgrims. It goes hand in hand again uh, with other movements of uh, armed struggle by oppressed people. Think of you know Black Power and, and Black Panthers in the U.S. Think of the like the analysis by Malcolm X and he, how he understood power and violence in response to systemic violence and racism in the U.S. So I think for me, those go hand in hand in the form as, as they are formulated by those who believe in these things as legitimate armed struggle against an oppressive system against them. Now, there is, Isaac, um, for you and I to connect on, this, on the issue because we disagree here, to understand how religion plays a, a, a harmful uh, role in dehumanizing people. And I think that's legitimate. And I think we can talk about it. Um, and we can talk about October 7th and how horrible that was. Um, but we ha- we cannot... My problem with, with analyzing Hamas as part of this Takfiri movement or jihadi Islam is that it rids Palestinian of, Palestinians of context. And I'm saying if we understand the context of Hamas within Gaza as an oppressed reality, a violent reality... Systemic violence that is not really visible to you and me because we don't see it on TV, but has been experienced by every person in Gaza. And if you understand the context of brutalization and apartheid and and violence and oppression and killing of Palestinians left and right since 1948, Hamas would make sense insofar as it comes as a response to violence. And I would say this as well, that abused abused people could easily become abusers uh, hurt people hurt people a victimizer could easily become a um, a victimized person victimized person could easily become a victimizer um so maybe these are some of the ways to think about it uh, hamas claims um october 7th a lot of mistakes happened on october 7th but they and but they they're saying that the goals for what they did was to get hostages and release palestinian prisoners that's what they claim if they were a jihadi group, they would have killed all the hostages by now. Because why would you want to keep a hostage? Because these are, you know, you know, they, their goal would be to destroy them, not to keep them as hostages. So it's fundamentally a political movement that is trying to assert some kind of power and credibility in a very awful way. But I think we need to we need to have that more ability to move away from the terms of a terrorist or a jihadi because it's not helpful, and have and add more nuance in our conversation about them. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. I think I'll just jump in here real quick, Daniel, because I can resonate a lot with this idea that when you use the label terrorist, it 
turns the person you're talking into talking about into something that's yeah. different. Yeah. That's not that's not deserving of the same rights as other humans. We wrote a piece not too long ago about FBI entrapment and part of the theme of that piece was how once you use the crime or have the charge of terrorist it gives more leeway to different state actors to use more aggressive force i think it's something that a lot of people even in the west can really if we take a step back see is something that happens with our discourse quite a bit is you use the label terrorist and then it changes the person you're talking about i think it's the the most challenging thing for people that are listening to this and even the people that are on the call having the conversation is to understand that if we really want to seek to understand an organization like Hamas, we have to understand that they are people and every person has motivations and try to understand the motivations of those people. So I think, at least from my perspective, I can understand that what you're trying to do is not to excuse or apologize, but to explain what you think the motivation is and try to provide a little bit of differentiation between a group like Hamas and a group like ISIS. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you for kind of emphasizing that. I I would compare what happened um, or what how Hamas thought or acted in a similar way to, for example, the Nat Turner's slave rebellion, where Nat Turner, who was mm-hmm. a very devout Christian who led the rebellion and killed many, like I think 50 white, white Americans, or the Warsaw uprising by Polish Jews against um, against what's happening to them and, and Nazism. So these are horrible acts, right? You're killing individuals, like you're killing civilians and so on. But it's born out of realities of oppression, fascism, slavery, and so on. Um, these are not identical. Um, but someone like me, as someone who has not experienced the trauma and the hurt and the violence that they have faced, um, I. I tend to understand where they're coming from. I reject it, and I wish they wouldn't do this. But again, we need to understand. We need to understand the context that leads to all of this. Um, recently, Norman Finkelstein, an, an American Jewish scholar, whose ancestors um, survived the Holocaust, and he gave the anecdote that his he asked his mom, like, "What do you think about Nazis?" And he was like, and she was like, "I want every Nazi, every German, to be killed." And Norman Finkelstein said, I disagree with my mom's like very, de- very problematic ethic, but I also have not been through the Holocaust, <laughs> you know? And I, I'm not going to judge my mom for the way that she thought about, about Nazis and about Germans. So, but, but it's easy for us to sympathize with the survivors of the Holocaust, right? They're, they're, they're innocent humans and they deserve dignity and liberty and so on. And what I'm saying is, we need to realize the dignity and the humanity of the Palestinians as well. And one more point here. Um, when, when Gazans over the last 17 years have, have gone through f- five wars, where kids were killed, where the mothers were killed, uh, where, when the 50% of the population of Gaza has never left Gaza and have only experienced war in the last six, 16 years. So if you're 20 years old in Gaza, you have lost a sibling, a mom, or a dad, or a friend, or a brother, why wouldn't you pick up arms? Why wouldn't you want to defend your honor in, in a way that is irrational to us and is abhorrent to us? You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know, I mean, and I don't know those folks at all, right? Like the Hamas militants and what they do and so on. But I, know, I knew of one suicide bomber in Bethlehem. This is during the first, the, the second Intifada in the year 2002, 
She she was a refugee in the Dehesha refugee camp in Bethlehem. Israel bombed the refugee camp and killed her parents and her fiancé. What can we do, right? Like, what, what, what feelings were she, was she feeling? Was she feeling at that time? And the only rational thing she can do when she lost all love of life and all hope is to strap a bomb around herself and go to a checkpoint and and kill two soldiers. But but that's but that's the context. If you cannot humanize this person and understand her hurt and her trauma, we can never understand what's happening and why people act violently. And I think violence is fundamentally, it's a sign, it's a marker, it's telling us there's something wrong here, and we need to address it. And, and I'm saying that the context, context of Palestine is a system that is inherently violent towards Palestinians. And, and, and Palestinians just like, and again, like, this might be shocking and confusing, but I'm comparing my players in Bethlehem with people in Gaza, a people who have never experienced justice. And the only response they have to injustice is to shout, is to be violent, is to curse, is, you know, and, but if I do not pursue justice for them, if I don't pursue uh, a system of equity and freedom, where I'm not fighting for their voice um, and for, um, you know, for them to find freedom and liberty and justice, I'm never going to understand them. And they're never going to be okay. They're never going to be fine. And they're never going to find life and life more abundant. And I think we need to pursue that. And and that starts with us educating ourselves and us humanizing others. Uh, I think it's hard for us to be, it's easy for us to be tribal and it's hard for us to, to empathize with people who are different than us, who are Muslim, who are Arab, who are Palestinian. But that's the hard work that all of us have to do. It's hard for me to care for Israelis. You know, it's the only Jew I experienced growing up in the West Bank is the person who killed my classmate and who shot my cousin and now is in a wheelchair is is a, is a soldier who sexually assaulted me on a checkpoint. That's the only Jew I know. That's the only Israeli I know. And it only took me to leave Palestine to make close Jewish friends at the University of Chicago to fall in love with like Maimonides and Buber and, and, you know, Jewish thinkers and be close friends with Jewish Americans when I actually got to understand what it means to be a Jew, to understand their story and their trauma. Um, but until then, the, the Jew or the Israeli is the one who's, who brutalized me. But that's the work we have to do, you know, and, and that's when I've, you know, that's when, and someone like who does theology, who's a, as a Christian, and this is to Isaac's uh, question initially, you know, as a Christian, I share the the traditions that Jews share, right? The the Hebrew scriptures, and for me, I am motivated by the prophetic tradition in Judaism. I'm motivated. I'm influenced by Martin Buber and A.J. Heschel, you know, and and love the works of you know uh, Maimonides and other medieval like, Jewish scholars and so on. But that's the work I had to do and move away from my hostility and my my anger and my trauma and like actually find complexity and beauty in the other. And, and, and that's hopefully how I, I mean, how I can do this work and how I can move forward. And it's still hard work, especially when I'm seeing this really citizens. We didn't really talk about kind of the complexity of Zionism and, and, and Judaism there, 
um, and something I'm not an expert in. But for me, when I when I go to Jerusalem and when I go into Israel proper today and so on, there is this gap that exists between me and the and the and the Jewish person or the Israeli person that I'm trying to bridge, that I'm trying to understand their trauma from World War II, to understand their connection to memory and to the land and so on and how they how they work that out in their lives. But then I'm looking around and I'm and I'm seeing a people that is refusing to acknowledge me as a human. Um that I'm only good as, and so far I'm cheap labor uh, in a settlement or in a grocery store or behind a wall, you know? Um, and also to extend that to the rest of the West, because uh, Israel is part of that, is for people in the West to understand that the full humanity, the full potential of Palestinians, and to advocate for their freedom and for justice for them. But that's where the work has to happen for all of us. It's really interesting to hear your framing here because it's so similar to some of the things that I've written mm. from a position as somebody who I think has more desire to see like the the Israel project continue, but in a different way than it has existed for the last 75 years. So I, I and because I think this is maybe the most important crux thing about the future, I want to really emphasize it, is that I don't believe there's any path toward peace or justice or equality or, you know, the generational healing that's going to be required to end this conflict with bombs dropping and people being killed. Right. And, I, and right. I've said this repeatedly in Tangle is every single time uh, a neighborhood in Gaza gets flattened. There are a hundred people who survive that experience who have the potential exactly. to become, you know, yep. quote unquote radicalized yep. and yep. take up yep. arms yep. or whatever. And so there's no, like when, when I talk about to my, you know, Zionist, Jewish, Israeli, even moderate American friends who maybe have really strong negative opinions toward the Palestinian movement or towards Hamas or whatever, I say, you know, I support uh, a deal that ushers in a ceasefire and the release of the hostages because I think the war actually isn't just unsafe for Palestinians. That's self-evident. Mm -hmm. There's tens of thousands who are dying. It's making the world less safe for Jews and Israelis because it's it's ensuring that there's going to be years and years more of armed conflict. And I want to live in a world that's safer for Palestinians and for Israelis and for Jews and for Muslims. And as long as like the cycle, we're in the cycle, it's, it doesn't happen. So fundamentally, that's the most important thing to me. I think, and I didn't want to make this r religious, religion-oriented conversation all about Islam, because I do think the, the Zionism side is really interesting. I think the Western Christian side is really interesting. I know you wrote an open letter, which I'll be sure to link to in the show notes, criticizing some of the Western Christian support for Israel in this war from, from your kind of Palestinian Christian lens, which I thought was really fascinating to read. I think one of the things you said about Hamas and the kind of comparison to, you know, Nat Turner or something, the the reason it doesn't land credibly for me is because I don't fundamentally believe that Hamas has the the interests of the Palestinian people at heart. I don't I don't think it I don't think it has a lot of interest in 
a a future for the the Palestinian liberation movement or you know whatever language you want to use i know people will take issue with every little word in this conversation right. but um i i don't i think what's happening right now is actually exactly what they wanted i think they want a regional destabilization a horrific tragedy in gaza to to demonize israel on the global stage a rise in support for this quote-unquote Palestinian liberation movement, whatever you want to call it. And they sort of sit back. I mean, there are leaders of Hamas who are, you know, wealthy and rich and hanging out in Jordan or Egypt or wherever else. There, there's, there's, you know, the larger geopolitical stuff at play through Iran or whatever. I mean, it's... I, I see what they did. You know, their their narrative about mistakes being made on October 7th, and maybe they just wanted hostages and you know, we're looking for a prisoner exchange. I, I don't see them having a fundamental interest in, you know, the Palestinian people who are living in Gaza and the West Bank right now, living in some peaceful, singular state that is, you know, equal rights for all and whatever. I, I, I think this is what they wanted. I think this conflict is what they wanted. And so that to me is like the fundamentally different thing. And I think it's one of my hangups about the future. And this is sort of, you know, I guess, I guess to, to, to push this conversation a little bit forward, one of the things that I said you and I had to talk about on this podcast is what the future looks like and what the path forward is. And I think for me, like if, if I saw a, you know, Warsaw uprising character in Hamas, if I saw a Nat Turner character in Hamas, if I saw that, I think I would view them as a more credible leader for the future of whatever this is going to be. But I don't see that from them. And I guess, you know, one of the things, one of the one of the sort of pro-Israel Zionist perspectives that I am very sympathetic to, that I'm aligned with, is that I don't think there's a future with Hamas and power in Gaza, a peaceful future. And the the Palestinian perspective that I've encountered is you don't get to choose. The Palestinian people do. And that's a really good, powerful perspective. I don't think the Palestinian people have a choice right now. I don't think, you know, they haven't had elections in Gaza in whatever, 20 years. So I don't think, you know, I, I know Hamas has rising support in Gaza right now because they're fighting. And that's what always happens when Israel is you know, bombing Gaza is support for groups like Hamas goes up, which again is another reason why Israel should not be bombing Gaza. And one of the reasons I feel like it makes Israel and Jews less safe. So I guess I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the future you yeah, imagine yeah. for the Palestinian people, what that looks like, and maybe some reflections on where I sit here, I, I guess, because I'd be curious. Yeah, the comparison about that. to Turner and the Warsaw uprising. Yeah, and um, yeah, I want to talk about the future. I think that I think fundamentally that's what we need to focus on. How to how do we move from this moment uh, and in pursuit of something better and a and a better life for both people? I understand why you don't want to make the comparison to the Warsaw Uprising and Turner and Ted Turner and so on. I not Turner, but I would, yeah, I would I would just I would make a distinction between a political movement or a militia movement like Hamas and between the, the sentiment that is behind Hamas, which is armed struggle. I'm saying that armed struggle has been understood by Palestinians as a legitimate response to the to the, the strongest military in the Middle East, the nuclear power that has been brutalizing them. 
I'm just saying they 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 find that as a legitimate course of action for them. Um, that's that's where I'm I'm starting for, from. The second point to make that comparison between the slave who revolts against the slave owner or the Jewish Polish Jewish um, captives revolting against Nazism and so on in Poland. Uh, the point is that that I'm trying to draw here for us is to understand the context and to understand that violence is should not be dismissed as barbaric and so on by a certain people group who are normalized for the other people group. We sympathize with Turner and with European Jews because they we understand and we can empathize where they're suffering. Today we do. Um, we wouldn't have if we were slave owners. We wouldn't we wouldn't if we were German Christians, you know? But now we do, in hindsight. And I'm I'm asking us to understand the trauma and the hurt and the abuse of the Palestinians, the context of Palestine, in order to help us to understand what leads people to violence. Now, your second point about the corruption of Hamas and the political, and they do not have the, what's the word, the the best uh, intentions for the Palestinians. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I think as a political movement, it's awful. <laughs> and, um, and their tactics are terrible. Like, I completely agree. I, I don't know if I could uh, understand what Hamas thinks as people in the West tend to say and pontificate a lot about Hamas and they think they understand Hamas. I don't know. I don't think we can do that. I don't know. I don't know what Hamas was planning. I don't know what Hamas thought would happen on the 7th. I don't know their motivations. We we can pontificate. Um, whether they care about the Palestinians or not, that's an interesting question. I I would say all Palestinians want liberation. All Palestinians want freedom. All Palestinians want the end of the brutal system. And Isaac, the point I was trying to make that as long as we ignore the Palestinians and we, as long as we dehumanize them, um, we're we're not going to understand Hamas and we're not going to understand the the, part, the hurt of the Palestinians. Fundamentally, Hamas is driven by a belief among all Palestinians that we need to keep keep fighting for our liberation. Most Palestinians believe in nonviolent resistance, and that's been the default position for us. For Palestinians to remain in the West Bank and not leave, for example, is an act of resistance when Israel has been trying to erase us. For Palestinians to write like myself and to advocate and to speak on podcasts, this is me fighting for my liberation and that of my people. Um, and 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 we can talk about how arts and education and um beautiful what is called beautiful resistance or creative creative resistance that most Palestinians are active in so we all do that and there are some some Palestinians who believe no like the the most dignifying and honoring thing as Palestinians is to 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 carry arms um there is a Palestinian analogy that um a statement that is made you know frequently that we would rather die standing than on our knees you know and Palestinians have been pushed down on their knees for 76 years. And some of them are saying, no, I'm going to stand up. And this is how I'm going to stand up. I stand up in a different way. You stand up in a different way. But, um, but for Palestinians, they want to die as the olive trees standing up, you know? And, Palestine, and Israel has been trying to press their boots on the Palestinian necks, and Palestinians are refusing to be on the ground under the, under the boots. Um, but yeah, we, we need to be critical of, of what Hamas did, and, and we should. Uh, but we cannot be critical of Hamas in isolation of the context, and that's what I really want to keep pushing here. We need to understand what leads to Hamas. And to answer the question, what is the, the way forward? Actually, before I answer that question, 
We need to talk about Zionism. Zionism as an inherently racist ideology that has brutalized Palestinians and dehumanized them. I, I, I've learned so much from Jewish allies and friends uh, who, who are anti-Zionist because of their Judaism. And for them, Zionism is inherently violent because it, it only says that you can be a Jew only if you live in the land, only if you follow into the system of brutalization and segregation and dispossession. And they refuse to do that. And they draw on their own Jewish traditions. They draw on to the prophets who command, command Jews to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly. That's not Zionism, you know? And it is Jews who are saying it is they, the violence they feel, you know, that their Judaism is not okay, is not complete unless it's a Zionist Judaism, you know, until it's landed and militaristic Zion ideology in Palestine. And they're saying this doesn't apply to us. This is, this is an, actually an aberration and, a, and an abuse of our Jewish tradition. Um, and Zionism is fundamentally anti-Semitic. It makes every Jew complicit in oppression. Um, and we need to move beyond that ideology that says it is okay for us to oppress people. And that's the only, for us, the only way for us to be proper Jews, which is, I think is Zionism. And I, and I carry on my body the scars of Zionism, the brutalization of Zionism uh, on my body and the body of all Palestinians, right? Um, and I think Jews have to do the work. We have to realize that Zionism is, is, is not what traditional historic Judaism has believed in. It was actually rejected by the majority of Jews initially as a secular um, and as an as a secular movement and as a an idolatry and a rejection of the Messiah and of the Torah. Like there's some work to be done there, but sadly, you know, Zionism has has won the day today. And but thank thank God for the anti-Zionist and the non-Zionist Jews who help us, someone like me, to understand the complexity of Judaism and the beauty of Ju Judaism. Uh, in that statement that uh, you mentioned, the open letter we wrote to uh, Christians in the West, we were quoting the Hebrew scriptures the whole time, like drawing on Jewish traditions to assert our uh, uh, freedom and our desire for justice. Um, so I think we have to have that conversation about Zionism. And you mentioned, Isaac, that you believe in the Israeli project. I, I have a problem with believing in a project that is fundamentally based on a racist ideology. And the only future for Israel that has to exist is a future that is uh, is cleansed from that ideology that is fundamentally supremacist and, and racist. And restore a beautiful, complex, diverse Judaism that uh, has thrived in the Middle East. Um, and we can pursue that. Um, but Zionism, I think, remains to be the problem. And its flip side, in this case, is also very harmful, destructive uh, exclusionary ideologies among Palestinians in the case of Hamas. Um, but Zionism thrives on Hamas and Hamas thrives on Zionism. And both ideologies, ideologies of extremism and violence have to be dismantled. And that's what I would love to see for my people and for Israelis. And, and I strongly believe in a one-state solution where everyone would live in dignity and humanity and, and liberty. Uh, and the land can take both people. But only when justice is established. No reconciliation can happen without peace and no peace without justice. Um, and another point you made about Hamas and elections and so on, yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, if you humanize, if you humanize Palestinians, and by God, if you know Palestinians, we, we, we are, this is maybe biased, but Palestinians are, are, are very 
powerful and intelligent and, and wonderful people. And they know how to, they have their own agency. And that's what's so problematic to me. Like I was listening to Thomas Friedman the other day, and there's just like a very, uh, I don't want to like use harsh words here, but this supremacist Western ideology, like we know what the path forward for. He was saying, yeah, we need to have the NATO control the borders of Gaza. So you want to include more imperialism into the Middle East? That's the solution. Palestinians have no say, no history, no agency. But that's the thing. If Palestinians are giving the chance to live in dignity and injustice, in, they're not. You have Hamas would not have any power, any, any justification, any uh, because Palestinians know what's best for them, and they know that Hamas, what it stands for, is not good for the Palestinians. But in the context of oppression, Hamas makes sense to many Palestinians. Hence, what we have right now. And Palestinians can make that choice, just like Americans can make the choice who they want to to lead them. Palestinians are denied democracy. They cannot vote. Why can't they vote? Because Israel is denying them uh, the right to vote and, and freedom in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and denying Palestinians in East Jerusalem the right to vote. And Palestinians are refusing to have elections that excludes Gaza and excludes East Jerusalem. And that's kind of, that's kind of what the Palestinian Authority is saying here, that only way we can have elections is when all Palestinians are granted the right to self-determination and to vote for their elected powers. And like you said, Isaac, uh, Israel needs Hamas and they bomb people, like you said, to empower Hamas and extremism and violence among Palestinians. And that works for Israel. Uh, but you cannot bomb your way into freedom and security. And, and, and that's kind of your point, and I completely agree with you. Therefore, the way forward to answer the question is to pursue justice for the Palestinians, to end the occupation, to dismantle any ideology of supremacy that exists in the land, fundamentally Zionism, because all of Palestinian resistance is resistance to Zionism, and, and fight today, speak up, and fight for the Palestinian rights, at, uh, for Palestinian rights and for freedom and for liberation. And whenever we pursue justice for the Palestinians, Israelis are going to have security and Palestinians are going to have security. But that's the only way forward for us. And and I I dream for a future where my kid, who I named Micah, by the way, as as a in, as a prayer, Micah six eight, to do justice and to love mercy. And I would love for Micah to grow up with Jewish friends. But how can I put the oppressed with the oppressor? How can I put the occupied person with with a soldier who serves in the military and watches over checkpoints? So that cannot be cannot happen, and I don't want that for him until we can guarantee freedom but and, and, and justice. But that's my dream for him to grow up with Jewish friends. But that could not happen until Palestinians are free, all Palestinians are free. There's work that politicians have to do, which I cannot do. All I can do is use my voice. That's my only weapon. Um, we need people like you, Isaac and Ari, to speak up for, this, for, for the Palestinians and to push the Jewish community to... to uh, to speak up against Israeli policies and against apartheid um, and pursue this together. It's a grassroots work that eventually can, you know, do the, the uh, do that, make the difference in, in, in today. And hopefully we can re uh, have, we can imagine a beautiful reality, a better tomorrow for both people. Uh, and hopefully that hope is what is driving our work today. And, and we have a lot of work cut out for us. And but we cannot be silent, Isaac. We have to speak up. People who are just uh, you know getting involved right now, you know, listen, educate yourself. You know, 
follow you know the work that is being done but then fundamentally you have to speak up and we need you to speak up I, in some ways i feel like our conversation's just starting <laughs> and so i don't you know i don't want to mm. end it but i'm cognizant of the fact that we're we're nearly 2 hours into this and i know ari and i are going to do a little talk about uh some breaking news related to joe biden that came on just before we got on the air so I do feel like I need to try and tie this up somehow. And mm-hmm. I think like so, something I would say just to respond to to everything you just said is, you know, the the complexity around Zionism and the friction that exists between the political movement and the and Judaism as a religion and Jews all over the world who I think have fundamentally different views about Israel and Zionism as a political movement. It's it's really real and it's 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 so complex even in this you know relatively small world of Judaism and it becomes even more complex when Christianity gets involved and Americans get involved and Palestinians get involved and Islam gets involved and one of the things that I think you know I I've been thinking about is the success of the Zionist movement is you know, driven in large part by the events of the Holocaust, by the the sympathy that existed globally for the for the Zionist movement then, because we just watched this, and, and it's hard for people to conceptualize. You know, I think y- you imagine there's twenty five thousand, thirty thousand Palestinians who have been killed in this war. Imagining the scale of that. To God willing, it ends tomorrow, mm-hmm. inshallah, you know, but like, like, like imagining that happening for years and getting to a number like millions, six million, and then thinking about the kind of global sympathy that would exist and the, the sense, the feeling that like something must be done was so critical to the establishment of Israel. And I think you know, I, I wasn't alive then, but I imagine I would have thought that that was, there was something right about this. There was something, you know, th- that so- something was so broken about society that we need to do something as radical as like create this new singular state where Jews could go live and, and, and rule, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, however you mm-hmm. want to frame it. Um, and I guess like my, my hope and my prayer is that, regardless of any feelings about Zionism or our, our political differences or whatever, is that this latest spate of violence is has been so deeply traumatic for the world that it, it becomes unacceptable to, consent, to continue forward on the path that we're on. And, and that, that's something I personally wish for. I, you know, showing my cards, I pretty much abhor this iteration of the Israeli government. I've been open about my feelings about Benjamin Netanyahu. And, you know, like I said, I think the path that we're on right now is not just fundamentally bad for Palestinians, which again is self-evident, but I think it's also, despite many people framing this conflict as Israelis coming from a position of strength and Jews coming from a position of strength, which I think they certainly are militarily and politically, I think their position has been severely weakened by the path that they're on and and made much more dangerous. And that's why I am so strongly opposed to so many of the things that we're seeing right now and witnessing. So 
Um, you know, in everything else aside, I think here sitting here, I can say that I hope that what we've had to live through the last four months for both sides has been so eye-opening and so traumatic and so awful that we we start actually thinking about something that's novel and new and different. And we don't just keep doing the same things over and over again that have existed for the last 75, 76 years and hundreds centuries before that in some contexts, you know? Um, I mean, this has been a, a, a region and a conflict that I think has had different iterations and worn different skin over time. And um, it's, it's horrible to be sitting here in 2024 as like thinking of ourselves as this high minded advanced society and we're just slaughtering each other still. Um, and so that's my prayer. That's my hope. I, I, again, I feel like this conversation in many ways was just starting, (laughs) but I'm so grateful for you coming on Daniel for sharing your perspective uh, frankly, I hope we can do it again sometime in the future and maybe pull it some more yeah. specific threads. If people want to keep up with you and, and read your work and stay in touch, how, how's the best way for them to do that? Uh, before I, uh, before I do that, I just want to kind of affirm you and thank you for what you're saying. Um, I think we can continue to disagree, but I think hopefully, or in some ways, I think, I think we agree a lot more than we want to admit perhaps, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think we need to. I need to emphasize that uh, yeah, that fundamentally we have to have the creativity and the love. You know what is what is love like? Justice is love in public. I think the statement that I heard recently. So pursue that active public love that um, seeks what's good for everyone, and hopefully, like love would be our ethic. Uh, I don't, I don't want to be too corny here, but. Just kind of see what it means to love my neighbor uh, as myself and to love my enemy as myself. Uh, you know what that does to you as a person, and especially if you can put yourself in the shoes of your enemy. Um, what you know? How can that transform you um, to be a better person? And I think, and I think, um, Zionism as Hamas, both ideologies are inherently born out of violence. Uh, you know, Zionism became legitimate because of the violence of Christians in Europe. And Hamas became legitimate because of violence over 75 years. Uh, but these are lazy um, binaries and ideologies of exclusion fundamentally by definition lack the creativity and the love for the other. Um, and then we have to move away from the binary of its, you know, we're the good guys or the bad guys, therefore we can do whatever they want. We Whatever we want to them, we can bomb Syria and Iraq and Yemen, but we're the good guys here. You know, we can destroy all of Gaza. We're the good guys here. But that is fundamentally that lazy, um, I think, unethical way of thinking about the other person. And if, if people of faith want to draw on their traditions, they have plenty in their traditions to draw on. If people are motivated by secular ideas of human rights and international law and on humanism, draw on that. It's simple. Um, The temptation for us is to be tribal, to be exclusionary, to be biased. And and I think we have to do the hard work of moving beyond that and pursue the law of love and how that law of love can can influence the way that we can think creatively about Palestine and Israel. And that's kind of the way I think for us forward is to have that radical 
creative love for the world and for the enemy and for the neighbor insofar as that can help us transform the world into a better place. Maybe this is too idealistic, but I think we can think practically of how do we do this, you know, in a specific, concrete, slow, um, small ways. And I think we can do it. Um, so to conclude, yeah, thank you, Isaac, for this. If people want to uh, follow with me, they can see me on Instagram and Twitter. Daniel Bonnura, just my name. Um, Ultimate Palestine, we have ultimatepalestine.com. We have some merch uh, and we have some donation pages as well they can look into if they want to support the work we're doing. Uh, We're trying to raise funds now for Gaza to send to our coaches. Uh, We just got an incredibly generous donation from a lot of uh, people in the U.S., and so if you want to keep helping the work we're doing, consider donating to us. You can follow us on Instagram as well at Ultimate Palestine. We have also some merch. You can check out Frisbees and otherwise. So if you want to support the work we're doing and rep Ultimate Palestine, please do so. Um, yeah. And my my plea to everyone is to keep the work, educating yourselves and activating and advocating for for truth and for justice in Palestine and in Israel. Daniel Bonora, thank you so much for the time. For those of you who made it this far, I, I, if you have any energy left, you stick around for 10 minutes. You can hear me and Ari talk about this uh, classified documents stuff going on with President Biden. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. All right. Well, God, man, I really do feel like uh, that we were just scratching the surface. I don't know how it feels that way after two hours, but I feel that way. I think there are a bunch of things that I wanted to respond to. First and foremost, actually, is the experience of being a religious minority in a country that we never really got to. Mm. As a Christian in Palestine and then as Jews growing up in the U.S., I think that's a it's something that there's a lot of conversation to bond over. I think we should have them back and just talk about defining Zionism maybe, because I think that was a key term that means something very specific to him that probably means something different to a lot of people, including yourself. I'd imagine. I think there's a lot of differences between my relationship to Judaism and yours. And, um, I feel like the three of us could probably be on a retreat for a week and <laughs> yeah, not run out of stuff I to talk know. about. <laughs> I, what well, I, I just have so much love for that dude. Um, such a likable person. Empathetic who's person. So empathetic and thoughtful and like shamelessly himself and forward and direct and no bullshit, no beating around the bush. I'm like, I, I wish more conversations were like that with people. Like I just, you know, just a total understanding that we disagree on some things. We agree on others. We're going to try to focus on some of the agreement and we're going to speak to each other in like really direct and honest terms. And yeah, he made it super easy to, to talk about this issue. And so I'm really grateful to Daniel for, for coming on crazy that like, you know, I, I don't know really how to make this pivot. So I'm just going to do the hard pivot. Cause you know, I think we're, we're, we're talking about something that's like really deep and tragic and difficult. And now we have some national political news. That's like a little bit, I don't want to say lighthearted. This is also really serious stuff, but it's different in kind, I think, than the conversation we were just having which is that we were about to sign on to the podcast and like literally minutes before 
we signed on this special counsel report on President Biden's handling of classified documents came out. This is going to be what we cover tomorrow. You guys will be hearing this podcast on Sunday. We're going to have to talk about it tomorrow on Monday. Special counsel says President Biden came across to investigators as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, was how the special counsel described him, said that he willfully disclosed classified materials as a private citizen, but no criminal charges were warranted. And part of the reason that no criminal charges were warranted in the special counsel's view was basically that he didn't think he could prosecute Biden. This was not the core reason, but it was one of the reasons. I want to read from this just for a second, because it's politically, this is a gift to Trump, uh, an order of magnitude that's hard to emphasize. I know we're nine or 10 months out for the, from the election, but if you're the Trump campaign, this is like the best thing that could have ever happened to you. Not the classified document stuff, because that sort of is just going to come out in the wash. But Things like this, the special counsel wrote, we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him by then a former president well into his 80s of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. I mean, basically just saying that he he didn't have the mental capacity to understand what the criminal acts were that he was performing, and that's why they couldn't prosecute him or one of the reasons they would run into trouble trying to prosecute him. I mean... This is like Biden's number one thing going into this election is his age stuff and the mental capacity stuff. And this is just like a bullseye for anybody campaigning against him in terms of material you need. I'm going to read one other little excerpt and then I'll let you respond to it. Another another part of this said, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. They're saying worse than, well, actually, I'll read the whole thing. Mr. Biden's memory also appeared to have significant limitations, both at the time he spoke to Zwanitzer in 2017, as evidenced by their recorded conversations, and today, as evidenced by his recorded interview with our office. Mr. Biden's recorded conversations with Zwanitzer from 2017 are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. Quote, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? Question mark. And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. Quote, in 2009, am I still vice president? Question mark. He did not remember even within several years when his son Beau died, and his memory appeared to be hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said that he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry when, in fact, Eikenberry was an ally with whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. And I get to respond to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's not something that I would exp- uh, I would want anybody in the Biden camp to have to respond to because it's um, it's just landmine after landmine. This is an exonerating statement. Like that, that's a good thing to remember. Is this is a statement 
that is explaining why he's being exonerated from a crime. And I can't imagine anything that's more uh, reputationally damaging. It would probably be worse if he was presented as somebody who was malicious. I think it, it's, it sounds that bad. And <laughs> we, we are talking um, all week with people for an Undecided Voter podcast that we're going to be doing. Um, we have an interview that by the time this podcast is out, uh, we would have just published in a Friday newsletter with Bill O'Reilly and all of these conversations, the subject of presidential popularity and age is coming up. And the, as much as we want to say it's about both, both candidates, um, one of them's the incumbent and it's always going to be worse for the incumbent. I, I don't know a way to, uh, talk myself into this seeming better for Biden than it is, uh, especially the way you frame it, other than to say it's not going to be a felony case for him. That's that's the win. That's the that's the silver and lining. And it's February 2024. So, you know, between now and November, we're going to get a million different stories. But also between now and November, he's going to be, you know, seven, eight months older and the issues that are being discussed that he has that are very real, I think, and people need to stop pretending like they're not real. They're very real. Are There are going to be more and more stories like this that come out. Now, I want to be fair to the president because he's responded in, in some part to, these, to this story already. He said, you know, this was an exhaustive investigation it went back literally more than 40 years. I went forward with a five-hour in-person interview on October 8th and 9th last year. I was in the middle of handling an international crisis. All this stuff is true. And, and you know, there's a world where, like, you frame this, like, look at the, this guy's 80 years old, but he's doing is incredible. You know, he's navigating the, the, the days after Hamas's attack in Israel, and he's... This is, and this is the thing that gets dropped in his lap is this interview and he's doing, you know, I get it. Fine. The language that exists in this report. And again, this is from an independent special counsel, somebody appointed by President Biden's Justice Department to investigate this. This is not political. Like, you know, this is, this is not some hit job from Fox News. This is a very serious person giving a very serious report on the record after extensively interviewing the president and essentially framing him as being too feeble and his memory being too addled for him to take the stand and defend himself or, you know, for him to even really navigate the interviews that they were trying to, 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 to push forward. So I, I think this is catastrophic, at least in the short term for Biden. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be awful for him. He's going to answer nonstop questions about this. It's going to go through the conservative media echo chamber and any independent right-leaning voter is going to see this. A lot of liberal Democratic voters will see it, though I think the media on that side will probably downplay it in a lot of ways. I'm excited to write about it because I'm very curious to hear how both sides sort of flesh this argument out. But this is not good. I mean, we had, we had uh, you mentioned Bill O'Reilly thing. People are going to see this in this interview that we did with him. He said in our interview that he thinks Biden has Alzheimer's. 
I don't think Bill O'Reilly should be diagnosing President Biden. And I, you know, in some ways, I feel like he's almost being performative when he says that. But he's telling his audience that who are people who are not just Republicans. He has audience that are people that are conservatives, that are in the middle, that are right of center, that are independent. And he's not a crazy radical either. I mean, Bill O'Reilly, somebody who I think is, you know, he says he's not an ideologue. I think he's a little, I think he's clearly a conservative, but like, you know, he's telling his audience, the president has Alzheimer's for weeks. And then a report like this comes out, like, this kind of stuff is going to have a really big, meaningful impact. And uh, yeah, I don't want to overstate it and like be reactionary. And this is why I love sleeping on stuff with Tangle. But I think this is bad. Doesn't it seem a little bit like this really sadistic game of paper football we're watching where we will have one news story about how Biden is misidentifying Nikki Haley as Nancy Pelosi. And then the next week we'll have a story about how, no, it's actually Joe Biden. He's too old. And then next week we'll have, (laughs) we'll have some story about Trump. Like these people haven't been in debates for a reason. And eventually they're going to have to debate each other. And don't you kind of think that we get so many emails from people that say this is the campaign that nobody wants or the matchup that nobody wants. Nobody wants a Trump Biden rematch, but People are voting for it, so I guess some people do. And I'm wondering if this is what they want. They want to just sit back and watch the most sadistic debate they've ever seen between two people who each side is painting as mentally addled and unable to compete anymore. I think they're both overstated. I think we're we're cherry-picking from people that are being televised a lot to find the worst moments they could possibly have. But we're going to have a lot more moments to cherry-pick from, and... The game of in paper a, football is only going to get weirder. In a non-serious, I'm saying this a little bit in jest, but I'm sort of not. Like, mm-hmm. I'm pumped for the Biden Trump <laughs> debate. It is going to be yeah. electric, dude. I mean, <laughs> I like, I literally have no idea what is going to happen. It will be all time, like, pick your job <laughs> off the floor television entertainment, and we should not. Everybody, please. For the leader you, of our country, right? I know. Like, <laughs> well, I just want to say, like, I I really want to be, I'm a serious, I try and be really serious about this stuff. And if you guys know, I think I, I'm, I feel in a safe space. People have been reading and listening to Tango long enough to know, know that I don't, I take this stuff very seriously, but it's just so nuts. And like, and I, I just have to say that there will be a part of me that, Everything aside and how ridiculous and seriously not great this whole situation we found ourselves is, is when that debate happens, if that debate happens, there will be a big part of me that is just like excited to watch it like I feel about watching the Super Bowl this weekend. Like I just, it's going to be exhilarating. I will be nervous the whole time because I won't know what's going to happen. I think... um I don't want to get too angry, so I'll I'll try to join you a little bit in the lightheartedness. Like We have for decades been propagating a political racehorse system that elevates theater above substantive argument. The debates have only been getting more and more theatrical, and this is what we get. Um, I think the analogy that comes to mind for me is just to, to end on something that's as 
as divorced from reality and silly as I can to help wash it down is a couple years ago in the Winter Olympics, Team Canada drew in their pool, China's team. And I remember when that happened because I follow hockey and I was reading some message boards about that. And people were so pumped for that. They, there were legitimate hockey analysts who were saying the final score of this game is going to be 70 to nothing. And we're not exaggerating. Like a lot of the players for this team cannot skate backwards and they're playing the best hockey team that's ever existed, maybe. And we cannot wait to see this. Of course, things changed. Like China was able to exp- like pa- repatriate some people and pump their team up, but they'll run up to that. It feels like what we're expecting now is watching that Team China play against Team China, like in an inner squad <laughs> scrimmage. And yeah. for, for the fate of the free world. Yeah, for the fate of the free world. All right, this is an obscenely long podcast now at this point. I, I'm not a Joe Rogan. I, I, I like Joe Rogan's podcast. We're going to have to edit ourselves. Yeah. He, he interviews a lot of interesting people, but I do not like that Joe Rogan's podcast is like three hours long. And I know he's the, he's the king of podcasting right now, but I'm a firm believer, like nothing should be this long. So we should wrap. I just, we had to say something. Also, I'll just note briefly that the Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin interview just dropped. So we're going to have to cover that next week too. So it just literally never ends. I can't believe this is like such an insane day. Uh, This is why I don't sleep and work 12 hours a day, six days a week. But you know what? At least I'm having some fun along the way. We are going to try and keep our tradition of our grievances, our airing of the grievances to end every podcast that we do together. Today was obviously a very serious and deep conversation. And now this Biden stuff that I have trouble being more serious about. But uh, we're going to end with a little bit of levity. The airing of grievances. You're not the only one improving yourself. I worked out with a dumbbell yesterday. Do you want to go first or second? I'm going to go first because I'm going to change up what I'm talking about. Because uh, I've got um like a, a larger grievance that I can expound on for a while. And I'll just shove that away for next week. I'll still be aggrieved next week, I'm sure. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. And I'll join you in some complaint about travel. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago... I switched out the razor that I use. I would love to say the brand, but I'm trying to get them to sponsor us, so I'll withhold it. And the I've been using those multi-blade razors that are disposable, that are made to suck, and they suck. And I switched out to a really nice single-blade handheld razor that it just works like a dream. I've been so happy with my choice. And I took it with me when I traveled and was confiscated from the airport at like five in the morning when I was barely awake. And just the conversation that I had with the TSA agent, I was 50% online. And he said, uh, we can't allow you to bring um, detachable blade razors with you. And I said, I can't detach that. It requires a tool in order to get that blade out of the razor handle that I don't have with me. So I can't detach it. And he said, well, it is still detachable, so we'll have to confiscate it. Or you can leave it and go back there. It's like, there's no way for me to leave this. Can I claim it later? And he said, no. And I said, so my options are to throw it out or for you to take it. And he said, or you could go back through. And I said, but I'm not doing that. So you have to take it. He said, yes. I said, okay. And he took that expensive $50 razor (laughs) that um, now I'm going to have to rebuy. 
And it just felt like to me what we're reinforcing is this structure of travel with terrible razors and buy disposable shit and throw it away and it doesn't matter. (laughs) And that's better than investing in quality and we'll go through this performance where it's safe for everybody to take this thing that if I was able to do any damage with this item, I wouldn't, would not be a safe person to travel. Like you should confiscate me if this is a problem for the rest of the passengers. And there's, there's so much to be frustrated about with, with travel that I feel like maybe we should just start the whole process over and dream up a new system and go from scratch. Yeah, I know I know a lot of people who are pro abolishing the TSA and I find their arguments emotionally very convincing. I you just remind me of a great story I can tell really quickly. That I have like a very vivid memory in I don't know, maybe 2004, 2005. I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I was traveling with my parents and you know, first 5 years after like 9/11, so it's like the early days of TSA still and my father had like a tooth, like a tube of toothpaste taken from him. And he was so enraged by this situation that like the, and anybody who knows my dad will know that he, uh, he can run a little hot when he feels like there's an injustice being done. Let's just put it that way. And there's something for, as his son, when I, when I see something small like this in the grand scheme of things happen, and I watch it build and I know that he's not going to be able to let it go. It's, it's like unbelievably funny for me because I recognize these certain moments in life that like, oh, there's no way Bailey's going to let this go. Like this is, <laughs> this is going to be a dog fight. And it was like this TSA agent taking his tube of toothpaste. And I was just like, all right, we're going to be here for like the next five <laughs> hours. Uh, and instead that he, he has this whole argument. It turns this blow up. The TSA agent throws it out. My dad runs his bag through and then takes his bag off the thing and goes around the back of the, like where the little thing is and plucks his toothpaste out of the trash can and puts it back into his book bag and walk, goes in the airport and gets away with it. Like nobody said anything to him. It was just like this era where they, you know, they came over on the other side and they just dumped the thing he wasn't allowed to have. And he was like, no, nobody's taking my goddamn toothpaste, you know, and just like, (laughs) and I have this like such a vivid memory of him doing that. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I understand the frustration of the TSA. That story made me think of that as I, I'll never forget that. That That is funny. And I also don't want to overstate my frustration. Like it was kind of a funny thing. And I thought, yeah, this might as well happen, you know, and I moved on pretty quickly. Um, but it's just a, one of those, it's, there's, if traveling air travel is a well-oiled machine, every gear is clogged with grains of sand. It feels like, and it, it's just nice. I think maybe to hear that other people experience it too. That's what airing of the grievances is for. It's for the uh, the mundane life inconveniences that we are privileged enough to have. So I'm going to give mine. My, my grievance of the week is uh, it's package thieves in South Philly. Not an original thing, but I wanted to bring it up because I have a solution. I have a radical solution. So just to be clear, what's happening right now in my life is that I can't send an Amazon delivery package or a package of any kind. I can't be shipped something without 
basically a 50-50 chance of it being stolen off my front porch. And what used to happen, especially with Amazon, was like you could order something, it would get stolen, you report it stolen, and they just refund you and send it back to you because they have so much money, they don't care. And that was one of the things that was great about Amazon. Now, Amazon delivery people have this new system where they take a picture of the package delivered and post it sort of like in your Amazon. So it's evidence that the package was delivered. And then if it gets stolen, they're like, you know, you're beat. We delivered it. You have to go through like a much deeper system. So it's not as easy anymore. So it's way more inconvenient than just telling Amazon it got stolen and, and getting it back. And I didn't really care back then when that was a thing. But now, like, my wife's ordering stuff. It's not just from Amazon. So we get something from a mom-and-pop shop. It shows up. We've been waiting for it for a week. It gets stolen. The other day, Phoebe was home, and she ordered something. She got a notification it was delivered. She didn't see it for, like, 15 minutes. She Then she saw it. She was like, oh, runs downstairs to get it. It's already gone in 15 minutes. And the reason it's gone in 15 minutes is because these people who are stealing from Amazon trucks and the USPS, they follow the trucks around, they follow them on their route, and then they get out of their car or they or they wait for them and they watch them go down the block and they watch them drop off the packages and then they hit the whole block right after they get done. And people can't do anything. You're like totally hopeless. It's ridiculous that we live like this. My grievance is it's absurd that we've accepted this. I see people like post pictures of the thieves on their front doors and whatever. It, we should be, we should unify and come together and fight back, not nonviolently, creatively. My solution is police escorts for delivery trucks. That sounds a lot like locking up the stuff in Walgreens, you know? This is better. This is better. A, a cop That's car cool because fo- we have a lot of police resources. Go ahead. <laughs> a cop car. But this is what I'm saying. It, you kill multiple birds with one stone. The cop literally just follows a USPS or Amazon truck around, so they're there. And while they're doing that, they're they're doing their rounds in the neighborhood. They're they're doing the same thing they do anyway. Like I know cops. I have friends who are cops. A huge part of the job is just driving around and waiting for a call to come in, keeping an eye on the neighborhood, doing your like quote unquote community policing. They could do that, drive around the neighborhoods, do their little routes, and also do something that like everybody would love them for. This is like a cop PR project too. Getting stuff stolen, delivery stolen is not just some like wealthy white suburban issue. It's like all my neighbors on my block, I live in a very diverse area, economically, racially, everything. Everybody is at their wits end. It's insane the lengths people are going to. Like some people sit outside and wait for hours for something to get delivered so it doesn't get stolen. The cops have to drive around anyway. Just follow the delivery trucks who are doing their rounds in the neighborhood Stop this insanity from people getting their stuff stolen. And then if you get a call and you have to bounce for something more important than like petty theft of Isaac's Amazon packages, go do that, obviously. But like, you know, the truck stops, you stop, you get out, you chat with a neighbor, you do a little community interaction. I think I'm on to something. I think this is a great solution that could kill multiple birds with one stone and do something that would be like, it's like a populist issue stop people from stealing my shit i i see one small issue here with this i see a couple but here's the biggest one so the packages get stolen because there's a little bit of gap even if it's 10 minutes 
between when they're delivered and when you go to pick them up. Yeah. You see where I I'm see going? where you're going with this, yeah. Yeah, that means you'd have to have a cop there like on your street for a half hour or so to do a little bit of patrolling to make sure that that gap is secured. Because it's not the truck and the drop-off that gets secured, it's after. Maybe the cop is... Uh... Maybe the cop does like a 10-minute delayed route. Then it feels a little like entrapping, you know? I'm, but, I'm in. I'm in. Entra- <laughs> I, cha- I changed my position. I know I'm I've been pro-entrapment. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been anti-entrapment. I'm now pro-entrapment. My yeah, position just, has just changed. What's wrong with a couple little well-placed stings every once in a while, right? What All about right, like corner boxes or something where they're like the del- delivered drivers have a code and they can put the code. This in. already exists. The people on my, some people on my street have, they buy these expensive boxes that they have a code and they come and the, the, there's like a thing you put fill out and they come, they open the thing. They insane. That is a concession to the people stealing stuff. I'm not buying a $300 giant safe that has to live on my front porch because we've all decided that we're going to accept the fact everything gets stolen. I think that's totally insane. Also, I don't want to do a shared box because I don't want to get stuff delivered that somebody else could take or that like everybody has to root around in my stuff. It's like, this is, it's a federal crime to go in and take somebody's mail. And yet we've accepted that like packages are just going to get stolen and that's how it is. I think it's totally ridiculous. What if we invented some kind of like less, not every block, but neighborhood-ish, like depending on per capita, like a building where you could go and deliver packages and that could be safe and- Shut up. Uh, shut up. <laughs> federally I, regulated. All right, we're getting out of here. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We're not going to invent the post office in real time. Um, I think we did though. Yeah, I'll see you in hell, Ari. I'll be waiting. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website. Our website.